I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the only podcast that is continuing production throughout the coronavirus pandemic. (laughs) I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to travel back through time to try and stop a terrible dystopian scenario emerging in the early years of the 2020s (laughs) are... James Hunt and Chris McFeely. Yes, 2023 this film is set in. (laughs) There's still time. God. Chris, welcome to the podcast. You are you are a new guest. You're making your debut appearance for us. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, uh, yeah, my name is Chris McFeely. I'm a YouTube creator. I do a Transformers-based series on YouTube, and I also do Sonic the Comic the Podcast with Dave Bulmer. And perhaps most relevant to this podcast is that uh, for 10 years before I started doing that, I worked in comic book retail. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> I mean, I knew you knew a lot about comics, but... <laughs> no, I don't talk about it much anymore. You know, terrible old old uh, war flashbacks. <laughs> I'm so out of the loop that, you know, I, 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 I'm ultimately not sorry about making the change, but um, it is remarkable how out of the loop one feels. Um, whenever, whenever you had to read the catalogue every month and order everything, and and you knew everything that was going on everywhere, and then now suddenly you're about to read out a news section that will probably be full of things I haven't even heard of. I mean, I, now that you say that, I know a few people who used to work in comic shops, and I think all of them quite enjoy the fact that they don't know much about what's going on currently in comics. There definitely seems to be, you know, a sort of a, a pleasant, <laughs> clean break once you actually get out of the the cut and thrust. Nah, I have one of those Wikipedia brains, though, that, that, <laughs> that has always, since I was young, retained all sorts of weird arcane comic knowledge. So it feels like there are gaps now <laughs> instead of... This may be the right podcast for you. <laughs> well, we, I mean, I, I actually... You, you, so getting you on to do this uh, X-Men episode was a bit of a light bulb in my brain because we were we were looking to do Days of Future Past anyway. It is the... Chris, if you if you don't know, what we what we do with the film series that we cover is that we, we follow them chronologically. Uh, by series basically and obviously with the x-men films being the complicated jumbled mess that they are uh, what we decided to do with our treatment of the x-men films was to follow them via wolverine's personal chronology Uh, so we began with x-men origins uh worked our way through sorry (laughs) Uh, the only exceptions are apocalypse and logan came out after the podcast started and we always do or as much as we can we do new releases 
when they come out. So mm. that's meant that basically, uh, not counting a certain film that's never coming out, we uh, <laughs> Days of Future Past is the last X Men film in our chronology to cover. Oh, so we okay. was we were set to do it anyway. You mentioned that you do Sonic the Comic the podcast, and there are a couple of reasons why I realised that this was a quite appropriate uh, film for you. Firstly, recently, uh, and I'll just to, I will explain Sonic the Comic the podcast, but I, we did talk about it because we did a Sonic the Hedgehog episode most recently, and I eulogised about your podcast and how people should go and listen to that on <laughs> that you. episode. But also, you recently did an episode on the Eternal Champions special, which was the, yes. the spin-off comic series about the Eternal Champions, which was a fighting game, which it turns out, and I didn't know this, is a very X-Men-y kind of team of characters. It is, rather. I didn't remember it being that way in my mind, but, mm. but going back to revisit it, but then I suppose at the time I read that way back when, and not really having read it in the 25 years since, I don't think I actually had a frame of reference for who and what the X-Men <laughs> were when I would have read it originally yeah. in 1994. So yeah, you, you making that observation was like, oh, so Chris, Chris knows about the X-Men then. And then I only realised actually after asking you that the other thing was, I only realised this from listening to your Sonic the Hedgehog episode, was that Sonic the Hedgehog contains two scenes that are pretty directly lifted from something that this film does. So Very directly. <laughs> and you, you, I mean, we didn't in our episode, which is a bit of an oversight by us, but you actually directly name-checked it on yours. So we will come to that when we discuss in, in spoilerific detail. Brian Singer's 2014 film, X-Men, Days of Future Past. Before any of that, we would usually ask our guest uh, to to see if there's anything that they that they want to know about or have explained about comics that me and James can explain for them. Chris, from the sound of it, you already know too much and have forgotten too much about comics to to want us to. Too much is a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we got a question though uh, recently. So on our for our most recent minisode because we hadn't done a minisode for a little while, uh, we asked the the good listeners of Cinematic Universe over on Twitter if they had questions that they wanted us to answer, and one of the we thought would would be too long to cover on the minisode or at least would be would be worth diving into on a main episode so we're going to do it now and it was a question from mark harrison which non-dc marvel comic book property remains overlooked in the ip wars given a bit of movie dosh what would we option shall i go first you can go first yeah sorry i was leaving that hanging in the air that you might want to Seems only polite that the regular host should go and first. And I've been rambling on for it. Well, actually, it's more polite that Chris should go first if Chris has got an answer. <laughs> I just thought I, I haven't mean... had much to say for a while. Yeah, go no, on, James. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this may technically count as a DC property because it was for a while a DC property. I think The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is due an actually good film or possibly mm. TV series. Either way, it's got a lot of name recognition. The plot of the comics, the first two especially, is absolutely fantastic. You know, those characters are beloved for throughout fiction for a good reason. I just, I think if you did a proper steampunky version of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it would be unlike any other comic book movie. It would be more along the lines of, I don't know, like a Victorian battle angel. <laughs> well, there it is. And, and that's what we're missing. <laughs> we're missing a victorian battle angel yeah i wonder if in this time of cinematic universes the idea of it, is it now more viable or is it now less interesting inherently that is a good question um i mean yeah when you consider universal's failed attempt that was exactly do... <laughs> what i was thinking of <laughs> yeah i mean i'm not i'm not proposing that they make you know a jekyll and hyde film and uh an invisible man film <laughs> And, you know, Dracula film, and then mash them all together. Although, if they wanted to, I suppose they could. (laughs) I mean, I I personally would not do that. Do you think that maybe 
the the time for a sort of a straight League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as it was in the first couple of volumes, is maybe a bit past. And would you maybe want to do something that went a bit more insane? Like, I mean, a bit more reined in, but like more like the later comics. Or would that just be too impenetrable for anybody? I I don't think those ones have the mass market appeal. Certain <laughs> no, I don't. The simple yeah, so, premise of the first two have certainly certainly not the Kerouac sequence. I mean, the the War of the Worlds one it seems like a, a good film <laughs> hook, but that's kind of sequel material mm. as well at the same time. Yeah, it'd be tricky to do the war. I mean, the, the, the I do think the second volume is the best volume of the comic. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yes, absolutely. completely. But it would be tricky to do that without having set it up first. But then that's why you say TV show. Yeah, it's kind of like because it's like you you have to be like the whole f- story is the War of the Worlds, so you want the so the 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 emotion it's supposed to evoke is oh cool, it's this team of characters, and now they're in the War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of have to introduce them first. But then I suppose you, you can't get you, know, you don't have Fu Manchu anymore, and they they were able. To, it's like the the comic was always able to dodge around things by not using names. But I don't feel like films can get away with that. No, probably mm. not. I mean, what I'm hearing is. It's a no from you guys on that one. So it's not a no. I just don't know how they would do it. Oh man, I've just realised we've inadvertently brought back the pitch segment just at the start of the episode instead of at the end. Chris, any any thoughts from you? Well, I have to be honest. Uh, from for a lot of the time I've read comics uh, up until partway into my uh, uh, job selling them, I I was very much just a devout Marvel DC kind of guy. You know, I did not have very broad horizons. So uh, answers. I don't hold a lot of uh, uh, nostalgia for anything like that in particular that makes me want to see it on screen. So my mind goes to some of the the big titles of the 2010s that really pushed me out into image books and other books like that, like um, Saga or um, uh, uh, Wicked and the Divine, books like that from Image, um, or uh, East of West, which wrapped up recently and I haven't actually read the end of it. That's Um, an interesting call. I think East of West is probably the most cinematic concept Mm -hmm. um, compared to those other ones, which... uh, you know, Wicked and the Divine was very much a... I'm throwing out names here, and I don't know if you guys even know what these books oh, yeah, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. or if any of the, the listeners in the audience know what they are, but... Well, uh, uh, East of West is uh, is sort of like a futuristic Western where um, death has broken away from the rest of the four horsemen of the apocalypse who are now going about trying to set up the apocalypse without him. And it's set in like an alternate history where America broke up into seven nations instead of 50 states. And it's about those governments and... Uh, the the wheels within wheels as the uh, as the horsemen manipulate everything and the politicking that happens in between them and um, to be honest uh, I haven't finished reading it yet so I don't know how it ends uh, purely <laughs> because it was on such a bad release schedule that I had to nope out after well maybe about two thirds of the way in creator owned comic so. on a bad release schedule shocking right yeah <laughs> I just I couldn't it was one of those things where I still loved it but it was a case of there were gaps between the issues were so long I couldn't remember what happened uh, so I was like I'm gonna stop here that is currently happening with sex criminals <laughs> like oh sex criminals is another one yeah i'm, I'm reading that too but i read it in trade so yeah, the, every the issue is good, even bigger <laughs> but every issue is good but i can't remember what i was doing the last time i read one <laughs> yeah yeah there were there were whole characters at the start of this like final arc of sex criminals where i was like i can't remember anything that they did in the series previously or what their relationship <laughs> with the main characters is yeah but yeah, East of East of West is a good call because, um, like I say, it's a Jonathan Hickman book, so it's already been you know plotted out to within an inch of its life. 
He's yeah. probably got diagrams that would help people adapt it very easily. Mm-hmm. Although I think anything, if you were doing a literal adaptation of anything Jonathan Hickman, you got to go television <laughs> because they're so sprawling. <laughs> but I, I feel like the core conceit of East of West could be, of course, this isn't specifically for films. This is for films and TV, isn't it? <laughs> Here is the question you're posing. I mean, yeah, I think the, the assumption for the question probably is film, but I do think with the majority of these kind of properties that we're talking about. I think the thing with superheroes is you can take a superhero premise and a, and a mm. character and you can put them in a narrative that is a film. But a lot of the best comics of the last 20 or 30 years will have been longer stories yeah. and you don't just want to see the characters or the premise. You want to see the story or at least a yeah. version of that story. And in order to do that, you've generally got to, to do it as a TV show or a lot of them will be really good anthology things. So I mean, some of the things, mm. a lot of the things I was thinking about coming from a very similar place to you in terms of the yeah that kind of peak 2010s era image stuff criminal i think as an anthology tv yeah. show mm-hmm. the thing about criminal and i feel like we've talked about it before ed brubaker and, and sean phillips criminal um every every run every series is a story in its own right or in some instances a, a sequence of stories but they're all set in the same overlapping criminal world just at different times sometimes very like fargo actually now that i think about it you know all the mm, seasons no. of fargo take place in the same world in different years but then you'll get characters or fathers of characters and that kind of thing popping up and overlapping. So I could really see Criminal working as a Fargo-esque show. Chew was one I thought of. Actually, when you were talking about some of those other image ones, Chew popped into my head. Um, That's one where you could take the core story, but the Mm. fact that the premise is... the, The central premise is about a detective who has the power to telepathically read the memory of anything that he eats which he uses to solve crimes and there are lots of other characters in this world who also have food related abilities and there is an underrunning plot about chicken and aliens uh which kind of you know the resolution of that is the main is the resolution of the series but that premise of the food powers and the cop you could tell a completely different story with that you you could run it for years and years and oh definitely yeah you could do uh, just a case yeah, you could, exactly. you could do a TV so. show where he does different cases, or you could just do a film where where he does that as well. Yeah, and I think probably my I mean my other one we've banged about it on about it enough on the podcast, but is is Giant Days, which again that would have to be a TV show, not a film. Oh, I've only just started reading Giant Days recently. <laughs> it's the best. Oh, we are in for it's such the a treat. Best comic. Yeah, I'm, I mean I read volume one, and I have like volumes two through four on a stack, not not six feet from me, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a TV show would lose the artwork, and I feel like whoever they cast it, would never yeah. quite be right. Although, maybe just get some of the cast of Derry Girls, uh, <laughs> transplant it. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I've only read one volume, as I say, but you know what? Sort of what it, what it says to me is uh, Netflix animated series. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Good shouts. Of course, then it'll be cancelled after two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, since we've got you here. Um, how do you feel about uh, More Than Meets the Eye slash Lost Light? I have, uh, geez, that's a very long and deep question, <laughs> but uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. I'm fully in agreement. I would love to see a Transformers movie or series that adapted that that story. I don't think you'll ever see a movie, but uh, Transformers <laughs> is funny like that, though, because our TV series, our TV series, I speak of it possessively, they don't, um, it doesn't exist. Like, sometimes you do hear people talk about that, like what would make a good movie or, or cartoon, and it's like, Transformers doesn't actually really have 
big class. Transformers doesn't have a death of Superman or a nightfall or a civil war it, it because every iteration of Transformers is different and it's different characters and different worlds and different stories. So there, there, there are big memorable stories like Target 2006 from the Marvel UK comic mm-hmm. to say, for example, but, um, you know, we don't have a, uh, What's another big comic story to use as a point Dark of reference? Dark Phoenix Saga. We don't have a Dark Phoenix Saga. That's a good one. We don't have stories that have been adapted and readapted and moved into other media and reimagined. That is very true. Maybe Unicron, but not really. <laughs> Indeed. No, I could talk at length about more than meets the eye, and we're here for something <laughs> Maybe completely different. Maybe when we different. get to doing Transformers, I'm pushing very hard for to make Seb watch Transformers movies. Like, <laughs> no one likes the Transformers movies, but Seb likes them less than most people. So um... the, li- the live action ones. Okay, I was. Just just checking which one you meant. <laughs> I mean, I've 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 never seen the '80s one either. I mean, my literally the only Transformers media I have ever consumed was uh, more than meets the eye. Uh, oh really? Oh, I thought maybe you would have come up on the British comic. Like a lot of people our age would have would have I, read the British comic back in the day. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of it, and I'm aware of the work of Simon Furman. And but my way in, my only real way into it is kind of sideways via. Marvel UK, Death's Head, Doctor sure. Who sort of angle. But more than meets the eye, I read because uh, James Roberts is a massive Red Dwarf fan and it has lots of Red Dwarf references in it and it's really clever and funny. Well, it's definitely, you know, it wears its heart on its sleeve for its love of and influence from the, the Simon Furman's Marvel UK stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, no, we we will get to that at some point. We we're, we're running out of of superhero stuff, and we've we've talked about doing genre ad- adjacent stuff. And we should definitely do Bumblebee. Bumblebee was really good. Yes, it was good. Yeah, if if we move into other stuff, we're not going to be bound by series the way we have been with superhero things. So we don't have to start with like what is it four or five Michael Bay Transformers films before five, we get to yeah. Bumblebee. Uh, we might just do Bumblebee because I've I've heard that's quite good. Well, chronologically, it is the earliest one. Oh well, there you go. That is true. <laughs> but yeah, we do it in in from Bumblebee's perspective. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the end of the Michael Bay movies, I had developed a sort of Stockholm syndrome where I was like, actually, this this one was quite good. I think two was yeah, the oh, nadir. Yeah, oh, yeah, four I and five, one, I quite yeah. enjoyed. <laughs> I I don't, I don't know which one was the nadir to be honest because. I, Again, Seb mentions the Sonic the movie podcast that me and David Jan did, but it's like I'll I'll sort of kind of go to bat for the second one in as much as it deserves because on paper <laughs> it's it's still an an adventure film that follows on the themes and ideas of the first one, whereas all the other ones are these grey military apocalypses full of racism and sexism. And not <laughs> that, that not fair. that the second one wasn't full of racism and sexism. But yeah, the um, second one did have the twins in, didn't it? Yeah. It did, yes. On paper, it, it is. It's 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 what it sh- it's what a Transformers film like should be, in as much as in the, within the scope of live action. But the the after that, three, four, and five are not. But but I know what you mean about the Stockholm syndrome because you get to the fifth one and it's throwing so much at the screen you don't have you don't have time to take it all in. You're thinking, oh, well, I kind of like that idea. Oh, and we're on to something. The watch that killed Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, little ideas like that, you know. Not to not to keep harping on about your your other podcast, but I I really did enjoy your your conversation on your Sonic movie episode, which is where this that conversation about Transformers came up, where where Dave made the point to you about how being a fan of a property 
turns you into <laughs> someone who consumes bad media just because of what it is and you end up yeah with that sort of you end up making apologies and excuses for it and um yeah sort of how how you would be with the transforms <laughs> movies is very much how i would be with a uh, a Batman v Superman Justice League strand. Uh, Doctor Who's a different thing entirely. Uh, a, a love of Doctor <laughs> Who is very much born of hate in the first place. So, um, <laughs> but yes, I, I, I very much, uh, while not specifically being on board with Transformers, very much empathised with the perspective being outlined in that conversation. <laughs> you have to. You have nice. to go and see we've, them. We've drifted somewhat off the point. But... Yes, but not off the point of this podcast, I think. And indeed, true, I think the true. X-Men films are a classic example of oh, a series yeah. of films that... <laughs> nice, <laughs> nicely brought around, my friend. <laughs> yeah, good segue. Well, I mean, we were obviously we we are going to come on to X Men. I I actually I actually already had a segue into our kind of not really news section, which is so that so the question from so what we're going to do is we we quite extensively covered what news there was on our on our recent minisode. We're not going to spend ages on news this time. Basically, all the news that there is is about which stuff's getting delayed and which stuff is getting rushed to home release uh, in the wake of all the coronavirus goings on. Uh, now, um, Mark's question was in relation to Bloodshot, which was which technically had a cinema release last weekend. I don't know if literally anybody went to see it, um, hmm. but it is already being rushed through to a digital home release, which, James, we might have to do it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not too bothered if... If I can do it from the comfort of my own home. Yeah, I think that that make that makes it achievable. So you might actually be hearing a bloodshot episode from us at some point if Claire Napier is free in the next few weeks. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I I think that's I definitely think that's a wise move. I think it's absolutely. Let's face it, it's the only way anyone's going to get to see that film. And if they if they can do it right and and market it as hey look here's a new superhero-y film well even though it's not really a superhero film but you know what i mean uh, that you can that you can watch right now then then that's a good move as is bringing forward the digital release of birds of prey uh i don't know if we're getting it in the uk as soon as they are in the US on home release, I never thought. Um, but I, it is. I believe the tw- I believe the twenty fourth of March might be the certainly the US digital release. But hopefully, I'm just looking at you because one of the because one of the stories as I Google it now is actually from the Metro. But that's they're just quoting Variety, so it, it's yeah. not clear whether that's going to be in the UK. I'm delighted about that because, as we talked about in the episode, I really, really enjoyed that film, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, I went into that with no expectations, and uh, yeah. it comfortably exceeded them. Yes, yeah, I'd like to support that movie. Um, something we're not going to get to see in the next month or so, and this is the flip side of this coin—the stuff that didn't quite make it out to cinema, so can't be digitally released yet. Black Widow. I, I we already knew when we were talking about the trailer on the last episode. Everything from April had been pushed back. Black Widow was due on the first of May. Absolutely no chance of anyone getting out to cinemas to see that. So that has been postponed. We don't know until when. In terms of the knock-on effects for Marvel, I would I wouldn't have thought that Black Widow would have a huge knock-on because from the sound of it, it's you know well we know it's a prequel. I I don't think. I don't, you know, if, let's say Black Widow gets delayed to, you know, kind of the autumn. Does that mean they have to push back Eternals? Does it, you know, is is there a problem even if Black Widow gets pushed back to after Eternals in terms of the chronology? I mean, F nine, F nine got pushed back an entire year. 
it wouldn't surprise me if they did the same to Black Widow as well. Like it, it seems like it could come comfortably come out after Eternals. I mean, we don't know what they might be seeding in it, but whatever they were planning. That's to true. You never know what it. they can stick in a post-credit sequence that uh, that could somehow set up right. the Eternals in some capacity. <laughs> but they've also shown a willingness to release Marvel films at any dang time of the year, so they could release it whenever <laughs> they feel like it, depending on whenever we get the all clear. Yeah. Um, I guess potentially the bigger issue is films actually in production, which are probably more likely mm. to hit problems and delays. You know, rather you know something like a Black Widow is finished. I I assume Eternals they've certainly finished shooting. Doctor Strange I think is something that could now be under threat in terms of that's supposed to be next year, and I'd be surprised if we're seeing that then. I don't think there's a problem probably with the TV shows. I think everything's complete there. Yeah, I, th- I think the the two, the first two are done anyway, aren't they? Yeah, Winter Soldier and yeah. Falcon and WandaVision, they're done. To be, I never really give much thought to this sort of thing, to be honest. I mean, we ever ever since Joe stopped, uh, stopped hosting the podcast, he was very much the man who was obsessed with release dates and calendars and schedules and stuff, and, uh, and we tend to wing it a little bit more. But um... <laughs> Oh, I love a schedule, don't get me wrong. I, I love a schedule. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, it's not the release, it's just the, the, the effect on production, to be honest. That's the first time it ever... I've, I've obviously been paying attention to the news that films have been delayed, but it has just never entered my head before right now that, yeah, obviously films that are in production, production will be being shut down on them as well. And then I think probably the only question mark that remains now, because as I say, I think if you get to like, if you get to a situation where Eternals has to be delayed, then I think there's bigger problems in the in world, the world than, than the delayed yeah. Eternals. But um, I think probably the, probably the last one from our perspective that has a big question mark over it is probably Wonder Woman 84, because there's been no word on that yet. That's due in the summer, I think July. I was just thinking about it earlier today, yeah. So that, that I think, is the, the next one on the table to potentially get a delay. Oh, in fact, it's sooner than I thought. I thought it was July, but apparently the UK release date is 5th of June. That feels to me not super likely. <laughs> I mean, I know it's just under three months away, but... New. I mean, there, there have been some events in June cancelled already, right? E3 and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of that is probably organisational. It's sort of, you have well, to... Yeah. For an event, you have to make a decision and pull the trigger. I mean, Glastonbury's gone yeah. as well. I think for, will cinemas be open? You know, And I think, there, I think there's an element of waiting because if you manage to be the first major release after, and we were talking about this with yeah. Black Widow, which obviously hadn't turned out to be the case, if you're the first major release after cinemas start opening their doors again, you're going to get such a boost <laughs> to what your box office otherwise would have been. Yeah, this could be a big help to Black Widow, really, couldn't it? Because I think people are generally feel pretty cool <laughs> about Black Widow. It's a film that feels like it should have come out a few years ago. It's the it's the first film after a big, big end point where you comfortably feel like they may they could maybe not even bother making any more films after they hit they reached that ending. I feel like attitudes mm-hmm. are, and you know, ScarJo's general bullshit. So it, it feels like, yeah, people people are a little cool on it, but yeah. uh, it could really could really give it a boost, as you say. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so that is that is the news, such as there is news about things not happening, essentially. So we will now uh, we'll we'll head on and talk about Days of Future Past. Uh, I mean, if we if we watch the Rogue Cut, and I did, it's a long film, so there's probably quite a lot to talk about. I did too. Uh, so we'll we'll come back. We'll we'll listen to a trailer, and then we will come back to talk about an X Men film that I think we have quite divergent views on. Me and James, at least, anyway. So let's find <laughs> oh, out okay. when we see come what, back. See what side of the argument I follow. <laughs>
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So many battles waged over the years. And yet, none of them like this. Are we destined to destroy each other? Or can we change who we are? and unite. Is the future truly set? Mutants, we now find ourselves on the edge of extinction. You'll need to go into the past to end this war before it ever begins. Use your power. Bring the X-Men together. It's going to take the two of us. Side by side at a time when we couldn't be further apart. Things that mean the most to me. Maybe you should have fought harder for them. There is a new enemy out there. Mutants. You'll need a new weapon for this war. I know what I have to do. It's us with them. All those years wasted fighting each other, Charles. A lot of people die. Friends. We've been given a second chance. Guide us. Lead us. I don't want your future! We were supposed to protect them! I remember. Okay, so that was the trailer for 2014's X-Men, Days of Future Past, written by our, our good friend Simon Kimberg, uh, from a story by Jane Goldman and, and Matthew Vaughan from back when this was going to be a Matthew Vaughan film because it was the direct sequel to, to First Class, and directed by Brian Singer and... Uh, I keep weighing up whether we're going to talk about the Brian Singer problem or not. We've done other episodes, we've done other films by him on this podcast. Let's just say we'll we'll not for now. But he's a I, bad I, man. Yes, he's a bad um, man, yeah. and it's really not relevant to the film otherwise. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think I will talk about him a bit later on the episode, just purely because I think it's quite interesting that this is a Brian Singer film, because in a lot of ways, it doesn't watch like one. You're right but, there. <laughs> <laughs> it is a film, as I say, as I said before the break, certainly in the past, uh, James and I have disagreed quite heavily on this. And it was it was pointed out to us on Twitter by John Fitzsimmons that 
I'd, I'd forgotten this, but before me and James did podcasts, or at least I think we were doing podcasts about comics, but certainly before we did podcasts about films, uh, if we wanted to argue about a film, we'd do it on our on our comics website, and we'd do it over email, back and forth, and then we'd, we'd, we'd splice together the email into a conversation slash argument. And we did this with Days of Future Past, because I really liked this when we saw it, and James really didn't like this when we saw it. So I'm interested to know. I am certainly interested to know where where Chris falls as well in terms of between. But first of all, I'm interested to know. James, did rewatching this change your view at all that this is a bad? It X-Men did not. Film? I, I still think it is a bad X Men film. <laughs> <laughs> well, watching this film did not change my view that it's a good X Men film. I mean, it definitely has things wrong with it, and we'll talk about the things that don't work and that are bad and clunky. I would still say. I would definitely say it's the second best X-Men film that Brian Singer directed and I I still think it's up in the upper tier. I think I think my my ranking would still go first class X2 and then this. No, incorrect. <laughs> well, let's bring Chris in at this point <laughs> to mediate. Well, no, I saw this film actually in a midnight double bill with first class when I first saw it. So, um I hmm. came out of it having enjoyed it, but at the same time recognising it absolutely was not as anywhere near first class. So my enjoyment of it was always tempered from the first... No, because first class is amazing and it's the best X-Men film. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But no, generally speaking, I still think I... I, Yeah, I I think I have cooled on it a little since I saw it originally, Um, and I did watch the Rogue Cut, uh, um, so I know I've watched the film a couple of times since I saw it originally, at least once again on Blu-ray and then again to watch the Rogue Cut, and then again for this. Um, I don't think the Rogue Cut particularly adds anything that was necessary. It was just kind of done because it felt like there was a... uh, It felt like... I I think it adds nothing. (laughs) Yeah. It just felt like there was a weird absence in the film that such a key character who, from, from the original films just Mm. sort of wasn't not was completely absent because if they'd been completely absent because the actress wasn't available then you'd shrug your shoulders and move on but the fact that you knew she was available because she was in that scene (laughs) at the end and that there were other scenes filmed it did feel like a massive absence so that that but that's all the 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 road cut felt like was compensating for an absence but not in a necessary way. So this is way. one of my problems with the X-Men franchise generally, is that there's so little continuity between the movies. Like, it's almost as if every movie is yeah. a standalone film that doesn't account mm. for the characters and events of previous mm. movies. Like, it, they they absolutely exist, but in terms of, like, their their narrative structure and their thematic coherence, they just ignore everything that's happened previously. Mm. Yeah. That's fair, absolutely. I think with the exception of X-Men to X2, I think first class to this film Mm. is the closest there is to a direct follow-on. But then I think a lot of that is muddled in this film by the fact that you've got the Singer timeline crashing headlong (laughs) into the first class one. What would you say to X3 to the Wolverine, though? (laughs) Um, I suppose that's like a direct sequel, isn't it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> many years afterwards. Like, because there were so many years that those films were apart, and yet, like, in the first couple of minutes, you're getting <laughs> flashbacks to this... God, how, how long was it? Eight years? Eight years? Seven years? Eight years apart? 
I mean, well, yeah. I mean, that was part of the fun of First Class because I, I had to look up what year it came. Not First Class, Days of Future Past. I had to look up what year it came out. Twenty fourteen. That's two years after the Avengers. Because I always, in the build up to the film, I always kind of thought of this as the Avengers of the X Men. Where you were getting all these actors pulled together mm. from all these past films. Only in this case, it was over fourteen years worth of movies instead of um, instead of just four, <laughs> like with the Avengers. And that was always going to be like a, a fun, impressive thing to see. Anyway, Kelsey Grammer coming back for one shot of him walking down a hallway, like you know. <laughs> I mean, it is definitely. I and mean, we we're jumping to the end, but yeah, hey, why not? Um, uh, it is really, really strange to me, and we've said this on the podcast before, that with the exception of Logan, which which stands alone, mm. it's really, really strange that they carried on making oh, X-Men films yes, in this so continuity true. after this film. This was the end. It's the end of two timelines. <laughs> <laughs> and they carried on one of them. And I suppose, yeah, Logan does carry on the other one, but not really, you know, they didn't really carry on the other one in any real sense. That goes back to what we were... Yeah. you were saying before about uh, about continuity like you know they talk about the events of X-Men 1 in 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 Logan which technically shouldn't have happened somehow so. mm. but that way lies <laughs> madness yeah so this, so this so as we talked about this this kind of is is picking up we it's picking up weirdly in two places because obviously it's it's following Logan from the timeline that he's been through from X-Men X2 Last Stand Wolverine and now this and it's taking the what's left of those characters from Last Stand and extrapolating them forwards into a future in inverted commas timeline that you kind of think is like surely like really really far in the future and i suppose from the time the film is released it's like nine years but it's weird that now we're talking about this in 2020 and as i said at the start you know this is set in 2023 <laughs> is there an on-screen caption at any point i'm not sure i mean it was it was wikipedia that told me it was 2023 <laughs> I, I don't recall that there was specifically because i just i remember the cartoon was set in 2050 mm, i think it might be that with the explicitly the past stuff is set in 1960 73 and it uh, might be that they say 40 years hang on 40 no 50 50 years uh it might be they, that they say that he's gone back 50 years could be i don't recall um but yeah so it's sort of it, it, it it's taken that one timeline and pushed it on into a future timeline that you know isn't going to happen but despite the fact that it follows wolverine from that angle what this really is as, as i said before is a is a direct sequel to first class which has kind of at the time the whole point of first class was that it was kind of successfully restarting the x-men series in a way that didn't rely on knowledge of the previous films that was kind of com almost completely separate from them except for dropping you the odd little hint and this is why i say i think it's really interesting that what this film is is on the one hand half of it is a continuation of that and a continuation of that style and the actors and the characters and at the same time, you've got Brian Singer's version of the characters all showing up in their black uniforms and and crashing into it. There are some bits of that that are quite fun to see play out on screen. Like, I, I, like for instance, mm. seeing Jennifer Lawrence's mystique 
become the mystique from the original series. Like, that's a lot of fun, seeing the timelines mm. link up in that way. And, you know, that's probably something that would have happened even if they just made an actual direct sequel or ser series of sequels to First Class. You probably would have seen Mystique make that change over time. I do think that, that so quickly after First Class bringing those two versions together does give me an immediate problem. And it's a problem this series of films, I think, never subsequently recovered from. I really like, and we talked about this on our First Class episode, I really like McAvoy's Professor X, particularly Fassbender's Magneto, and even more particularly the relationship between those two characters. I think all of that is great. Yeah. I find it really hard to see, again, particularly McAvoy as playing the same character as Patrick Stewart. With Fassbender, yeah. it's partly the age thing, and I made a joke about this on Twitter back when Dark Phoenix came out, that in 1992 he looked like Michael Fassbender, and in 2000 <laughs> he looked like Ian McKellen, and what the hell happened to him in the late 90s? <laughs> but I think this film, by actually putting McAvoy and Stewart facing each other on screen... They're just, I, you know, I, I buy both as versions of Charles Xavier because these are comic book characters that always have different versions and interpretations, and both can work. I don't see them as the same character, and I think it's, the, I think mm. it's the biggest problem with this story. I can agree with that. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it, it, does anybody really feel like the same character except for Mystique? Even Mystique is barely the same character. Like in the first three films, she doesn't really have any personality or, or history. <laughs> Whereas in this, she is a character. <laughs> She's kind of a vaguely reptilian assassin. I'm not even thinking about character, really, I suppose. I'm thinking about... Yeah, just appearance. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, physicality, too. You know, you do see yeah, her starting yeah. to do all those very gymnastic kicks and, and everything. <laughs> But then I suppose, I mean, part of part of the, the, the plot even of the finished Days of Future Past is the transformation of Raven into Mystique as she appeared. And it's, it's her crossing the line, killing, becoming somebody else, you know, becoming more radicalized, more dangerous, more willing to kill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the story they were trying to tell, yeah. Anyway, she's good and it's the last film she was good in. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> she does phone it in in the subsequent ones, that's for sure. Oh god, yeah. disastrously so. Like she's trying in this one. And I think it's I I think there's you know, again, I think there's there's a good continuation of that dynamic from first class. I think any time, and again, we even said this about Dark Phoenix, like pretty much any time you've got McAvoy and Fassbender on screen together as Charles and Eric you're getting good stuff and like the scene on the plane with them mm -hmm. in this is is great and is a prime example of that but i do also really like the way this does this moves on things from the end of of first class so like you know first class kind of ends with with raven going off with magneto um, by the time this film comes around, they have already separated, but the fact that she went off with him is what set her off on her own direction. Mm. And I quite like that it's sort of, it is that jump forwards of sort of, you know, this stuff has happened to, to Charles and Hank, and this stuff has happened to, to Eric and Raven. Like, they're not in the same place we left them at the end of First Class, but they're in a place that follows on directly from you know the events of first class i'm not sure i see that as a good thing i feel like i mean <laughs> would i rather have had a direct sequel to first class where we got more funky 60s adventures and and, and uh fassbender wore that <laughs> costume that he wore at the end of first class yes but <laughs> yeah that's not the timeline we and they did 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean, again, as you know, as, as someone with with so much affection for First Class, the fact that what this film does, it basically goes, hey, you know, all of those other characters that we introduced, we've killed all of them off in between then and now. I mean, that that's that's a problem with the X Men films in general, though. It's like it's to First Class's credit that it managed to make that weird random assemblage of nothings into an entertaining group of characters to watch that you maybe were then annoyed to see had all been killed off screen um you know i'm I'm, I'm thinking now over this one this one is not as bad as certain other films in the x-men series for just randomly throwing out uh characters into the world because a lot of the characters that appear uh in this um well they're mostly just in the future segments aren't they and they're all kind of characters that that Mm. make sense you know bishops in there the the most famous alternate future x-man um (laughs) uh, blink you know one of the most famous original characters from the most famous alternate universe x-men storyline um warpath a character who famously dies in the comics so him being alive would be some kind of alternate timeline thing and also (laughs) sunspot is there so they didn't yeah that's something that this movie actually got away with that i'm not sure any other x-men movie has ever really managed to navigate properly even stuff like um apocalypse and and now i'm stuck to think of an example from apocalypse but we don't talk about apocalypse i mean caliban was in apocalypse right and turned up in logan (laughs) caliban yes completely was in apocalypse Didn't come yeah. back for the next film. Yeah, and totally random. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're getting. Yeah, now we're getting the list together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Speaking of, of characters and whether or not they return, I do like how on the on the Wikipedia cast list for this film, uh, it tells us that that Fan Bingbing, who played Blink and who is now more famous for uh, <laughs> being, being disappeared by the, by the Chinese, Chinese authorities, yeah. for yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be the first of a five movie contract for X Men films for really? Blink. Never appeared again. Well, a five movie contract isn't isn't necessarily a promise to appear in five movies, is it? It's just the potential to appear in five movies. Yeah, I do think it's well, interesting that they, they were they were you know. developing an X Force movie that was reportedly going to feature the characters from from this film. It was um it was hmm. being developed by who is the guy who did Kick Ass Two? Jeff Jeff Wadlow. He wrote an X Force script that he was planning to direct. Uh, and I believe it was based in part on these characters. It probably what a terrible idea. Very good. Oh, absolutely terrible. <laughs> I think Deadpool two <laughs> successfully killed any notion of X Force ever happening as its own serious film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. The other thing about the characters in the future setting, and I think it is definitely one of the the biggest issues the film has, and actually it is something that even back in in our our original argument and conversation about this I, that I had as a criticism, which is that. It introduces all of these characters, doesn't give you time to know who they are, kills them off Mm. at the beginning in a timeline that doesn't exist anyway, and then kills them all off at the end of the film in a timeline that doesn't happen anyway. Like, literally, we I mean, obviously, one of them's Iceman. It's basically Iceman and then a bunch of people who, unless you're a fan of X-Men comics, you don't know who any of these characters are. And we have to watch these characters get brutally killed by the Sentinels twice. (laughs) And I don't know when we're supposed to care because they're both fake outs. <laughs> and it's like, you've already pulled this trick once at the start of the film and now you're pulling it again. Well, I feel like the thing at the start is kind of necessary because it's, it's, I mean, this film is, it did, ha- to its credit, it had to tread very carefully to lay out and explain how the 
utterly hat stand time travel physics of this movie actually work. <laughs> and and by having that little <laughs> setup fake out thing to introduce mm. the basic idea and then expound upon it instead of just dumping everything out of the blue in an info dump at the start was the better way of going about it. I still don't understand what mm. they were thinking. Uh, why does, like, At no point is it ever attempted to explain why Kitty Pride can suddenly send people back in time. <laughs> yeah. Secondary mutation, let's say. But you get lots of little things like that, like like Wolverine's got his... Like, obviously... Well, I mean, okay, so here's a, here's a talking point. Like, before this film came out, and around the time it came out, there was a lot of argument over the use of Wolverine as the character who was sent back in time. When I mean, we haven't talked, we haven't mentioned this at all. I'm sure many of your listeners know this already. But uh, Days of Future Past is based on a, a very famous, a seminal two-part story from the 1980s X-Men comic by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, in which. Uh, Kitty Pride uh, is sent back in time from the future and possesses her younger self and helps the X-Men foil an attempt by Mystique to assassinate Senator Robert Kelly. She is sent back from the distant future of 2013. <laughs> <laughs> Rough. And obviously they had already used Senator Kelly uh, in the first movie because he was famous from that storyline and no let's be honest no he's not famous from that storyline he's famous from the cartoon adapting that storyline um uh, <laughs> so they got the character out of the way uh, in the first movie so that they switch it up now so that the person she's trying to assassinate is the inventor of the sentinels and people uh, there were some arguments about whether wolverine was the character used you know there's arguments about whether wolverine is overused and no to me wolverine was there was never only the only choice there could ever have been. Uh, he's the main character of the film, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah. obviously, he's the only one that you could. Mm -hmm. put, uh, never, never mind any of that justification about him being the only one who would be old enough or the only one who could survive or who existed in both time periods. He's the main character of the films. He's the only choice the narrative could ever have done. And it allows you to do things like you get the juxtapose of the metal claws in the future and the bone claws in the past. And you know, that scene where he's shocked where the bone claws came out. Except that when we last saw him in the future, he had bone claws. And they make no effort to explain why he's got metal ones again. When, when I mean, how, what was the gap between the Wolverine and Days of Future Past? Six months? Something like that? It wasn't a year, was it? <laughs> It was a very short gap, yeah, and they yeah. they had a tag scene at the end of the Wolverine. They, yeah, they put a teaser on it. Lines up with nothing in this movie. Like, yeah. why? Why did you do that? It's like the teaser was made by someone who hadn't seen the the film, yeah. the film it was leading into. I mean, what you say about in terms of like using Wolverine as the the point of view character, definitely something that, I, and I think it's been clear over the course of us doing these episodes definitely something that going back and doing all of the x-men films um has given me and i think all of us a, a renewed appreciation for is just how good hugh jackman is as a, right. a rock and an anchor at the heart of these films and you absolutely a hundred percent cannot imagine a single other character from this series of films being the perspective character to do this i mean that's true basically just from the first x-men film never mind everything else we've had him do since then and i think particularly off the back of the wolverine which again chris you, you may not have heard this but the really interesting thing about the wolverine was a film that i'd kind of pretty much completely forgotten everything about from having seen it originally we went back and did that it wasn't that long ago was it it was, it was late last year and it's great and he's great it is great it. yeah 
<laughs> like the ending kind of feels like it wanders in from a different film when he's suddenly yeah. fighting a giant robot samurai but who gives a fuck it's cool <laughs> no that's a that's a good film and i will stick up for the wolverine and i feel like it gets glossed over a lot hmm. it's fair to say we reevaluated it all of us like we we all liked it to various degrees but when we rewatched it it was very clear that actually this is the sort of thing the x-men movie should have been doing all along mm. which is standalone stories mm. with those characters in relatable small scale situations mm. that had stakes relevant to them not this kind of thing well th- there's only so many x-men characters you can do standalone stories with you know so yeah. many of the x characters <laughs> are built to be <laughs> pieces of a machine p- parts of a team that they don't support their own stories and there's nothing wrong with that but... i'm still waiting for the cyclops i was just movie. gonna say as much as i like him you know you're not oh, gonna God. do that with cyclops <laughs> yeah. there are cyclops solo stories you can do <laughs> Uh, are there (laughs) yeah with the teenage version (laughs) Uh, that's an open question i'm kind of inviting you to fill the space there (laughs) i think i think there are there are there are there are cyclops and gene and possibly emma stories that you can do there aren't Mm, cyclops off on his own (laughs) yeah storm is probably the one other character who springs to mind uh, as the most plausible one i mean i mean to be honest you know you see these discussions sometimes about who's marvel's wonder woman who's marvel's leading female heroine and they've they've made great strides in the last 10 years or so across comics and other media uh to make it be captain marvel but prior to that like it it was like storm or rogue honestly like forget your scarlet witch forget your invisible woman it it was an ex-woman it was like storm or rogue was marvel's most prominent famous female heroine Mm. but i still don't know if storm is honestly got the chops to carry a film on her own and that i love storm don't get me wrong i've always loved storm <laughs> since i first encountered so many of the x-men characters in the cartoon but she can't she's never been able to support a, an ongoing comic series but that's not the same as supporting a film i suppose and i mean and th- i mean this is a series of films that has done storm so dirty over the course of 15 years <laughs> <laughs> they do give her a new haircut in this one so she doesn't get no yeah. development <laughs> that's what she gets <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, one of my problems with the X-Men movies, actually, is that they don't adhere to that team dynamic quite as well as the cartoons, say, did, or the comics do. Like, they tend Mm. to treat it as the Wolverine show co-starring Professor Xavier and Magneto, and then everyone else is just a sort of bit part. Yeah. Um, That gets certainly got a lot worse. It's funny how that has sort of had an an outreach of an effect to other X-Men media as well, isn't it? Like, I I blame the movies, essentially, for why Magneto can never truly be a villain again in anything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny, because, like, one of the big beefs I have with this movie is the Magneto becomes the body at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is like a universal problem with X-Men, with the entire X-Men film series. But he's become such an intrinsic cog in the X-Men machine off the back of these films. Let's not forget, like, when the first X-Men film came out, we were either in the middle of or just off the back of an X-Men comic book storyline where he'd literally inverted the world's magnetic field again and, and made a whole event out of it, the Magneto War. He was still a villain then. And it's basically ever since Grant, the end of Grant Morrison's X-Men and the hasty retconning of that, <laughs> that, that Magneto's never been able to be a true baddie anymore. I mean, this film does have the does have that really weird beat where, like, uh, for some reason, Magneto just basically becomes evil at the end, and you're a bit like, right? Surely, surely you you're yeah. fighting for the same thing. Why are you why have yeah. you just gone evil? 
he like there's no reason for it and the, like you know he goes to this guy and there's again it's oh, so much of what's good in this film happens in that plane scene but that conversation between Wolverine and Magneto two characters who through the course of this film series have always been at odds and you know Logan is basically saying to Eric like I've come back from the future we've had a lot of running run-ins in our life we've tried to kill each other an awful lot and we don't like each other but a future version of you has sent me back because you trust me to do this you've had all of that between them and then right at the end for no apparent reason despite having been told that his future self knows him really really well Eric is just like, I'm just going to kill this guy. <laughs> just like, yeah, you know, all right, see you, bye. Yeah. At the same time as... And then they let him go at the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's that's nowhere near as egregious as letting him go at the end of Apocalypse. But yeah, the character, <laughs> he, it's the, the, he lives in the weirdest space in the films where they have to have him be a baddie, but they mm. never actually allow him to suffer the consequences that a villain in a film should face. Yeah. And that's why First Class was so good, because... I mean, it's a bit different whenever it's comic books and the long, big, long decades worth of comics where history just sort of recedes into the distance and in order to do new things with new characters, history just has to be quietly glossed over sometimes. But whenever it's like <laughs> finite films... Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like the Magneto, it, it's... I said I liked this film, but all I'm listing off are grievances. <laughs> but if I do have a, a, a chief grievance with Days of Future Past, it, it is a fanish grievance, but it's the fact that, right, well, here's the thing, right, the Sentinels are awesome. Sentinels have always been awesome. Two reasons the Sentinels are good. One, they're giant robots. <laughs> you know, end of. Giant robots are cool. Second, Sentinels are the metaphor made manifest. They are the physical embodiment of man's intolerance. They are weaponized intolerance. <laughs> and they embody not just that, but they also embody the paradox of that. They, 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 they embody the pointlessness and the self-destructiveness of intolerance because they always wind up turning on mankind as well because they don't see a difference. Mm -hmm. And we're deprived of that. Because, I mean, it's 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 actually so grey within the film itself. There's only like a fleeting mention of how the worst of humanity is left in charge in the future. Mm. Um, and it's never really talked about, about who's in charge in the future. But in it, with, with that mention, like we're deprived of the idea, like the turning point should not be Magneto taking over the Sentinels. It should be the Sentinels yes, becoming self-aware. Yes, exactly. Yeah and building that the is, future that is the point of the original days of future past story the one from the comics which is that actually in the future the sentinels are the ones in charge um in the in the movie all we see is this sort of very vague notion that oh, if you're a mutant you have to go and hide in a weird sort of old building with some flaming bins and you'll be in trouble but actually <laughs> what they should have shown is a society absolutely ravaged by the sentinels to to mm. make the point as the comic does that the future is bad whether you're a mutant or a human Yes, so this is this is again this is just to bring up that that conversation that we had. This is a point that you made and I fully agree with you on going back to the film now. In this film, the future only seem only looks bad because the X-Men are getting hunted by Sentinels. That's basically what makes it bad. The in order to show us how bad the future is, the film shows the X-Men getting hunted down and killed by Sentinels. 
basically. And it shows a lot of like flames and collapsed buildings and stuff like that. <laughs> but basically, that's what it shows us. What it doesn't effectively show us is a broken, horrible, dystopian world. Mm-hmm. And that's what it should be doing. It should be saying these are the stakes. It shouldn't be saying the stakes are mutants are going to be hunted and feared and start to lose more than they currently are. Because that's... The raison d'etre of the X-Men is to be hunted and feared and lose a lot of the time. You know, it's like that's 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 what they do. Yeah, like the film makes gestures in the direction of a dystopia, but it's all mm. through mutant eyes. We see yeah, exactly. destroyed buildings that might have been some city we were supposed to recognize. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but yeah, we, we lose the central you know, metaphor that, that man's intolerance will destroy man. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, just to, I think that that does actually kind of dovetail a little bit into, uh, like you were saying, Chris, you know, that sort of saying that you quite like the film. And I agree, I, 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 there's a lot that I enjoy about it. I really like the film that's kind of in the middle of this film, which is the 1970s set mm. sequel to First yeah, Class, yeah. in which Wolverine comes back from the future to say, because of what's happened, Mystique is going to go and do something terrible. That's going to cause a terrible future. And you all, having separated and had your problems and had your differences, have to all get back together and stop her from doing it. Plus, you've got this awesome, funny guy at super speed who can run around and do good set pieces who's going to join you and help you that film which feels like it like would have been the actual sequel to first class if this had been matthew vaughan and jane goldman and everybody doing it i really like i think it's funny i think it's stylish i think it's got good action sequences and i love all of the character interactions and stuff the problem with it is is that it's surrounded by a mediocre Brian Singer X-Men film <laughs> that doesn't really understand what it's doing thematically and chucks the Sentinels in for the big set piece at the end and I mean we've all wanted the Sentinels yeah. for a long time <laughs> and they teased them at the end of X3 and whenever a Days of Future Past was announced we were all excited principally because it meant Sentinels giant <laughs> robots so I'm not sad that they did Sentinels but um they just didn't do them to the best of their capacity. They're yeah. just they're tools of man in this film. Yeah. And I mean, not that's their the thing, isn't? Evil. They didn't do the Sentinel story, which is mm. as we've discussed, mm. like robots becoming self-aware and destructive to everything around them. Mm. What they did was put some giant robots in a story about Magneto turning evil again. They uh, all, they yep. also my, my probably my biggest problem with the Sentinels in this film is what they look like and act like in both eras. And my problem with it is. Surely what would have been great was... I really like the design of the Sentinels in the 70s, mm-hmm. but it is completely yeah. wrong for the 70s. Those Sentinels, <laughs> those sleek, plasticky, curved Sentinels, which still look like Sentinels but look futuristic, yeah. should be the Sentinels in the future. Because the Sentinels in the future are just like these ridiculous grey morphing monster things that have pretty much no relation to what a sentinel really kind of should look or or act like kind of apart from the the kind of the adaptability thing what they should do is they should have those sleek futuristic ones be that's what the sentinels become and in the 1970s we should have some brilliant clunky 
boxy, 1970s-looking Mark I Sentinels. They're just too slick when they show up at the end. And it's like, where where's my clunky Sentinels that actually look like they've been drawn in 1973? I don't mind them so much. I mean, they don't, you know, they, they have a sort of a sleek outer look, but you don't get the impression... Uh, that they're particularly graceful robots, you know? No, but they still just... Uh, they're just too clean. They're just too shiny and clean. They are quite clean. <laughs> I just I just want some nice kind of retro-futurist tech in my in my 70s bit, you know? You know, you mentioned about how the, the, the 70s plot is about, like, everybody having to get back together again. But it's only about Professor X and Magneto having to get back together again. You know, it's not about actually rebuilding the X Men. No. And uh, maybe, it, maybe it would have been if if this had just been the film, if that had been the uh, the, the dedicated first class sequel. Mm. I mean, yeah, because when you think about it, it's like there aren't any X Men in the in the seventies section, are there? Really? No. You know, Wolverine knocking on Beast and Professor X's door does not <laughs> the X Men make I mean, as, as a team main universe. It looks like it's heading that way because they start to go and put together a team, and they 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 they, oh, yeah. they go and talk to this guy that I alluded to before. Um, the problem is the film the film's plot relies on not having a character who can move faster yeah. than a bullet <laughs> at your disposal because if you have that character at your disposal <laughs> well every i mean that that's kind of the problem like he's he's a lot of fun quick like no i mean he's not anything that i recognize as the character of quicksilver no that's but true. <laughs> for what he is in the film he's a lot of fun uh, the the super speed sequence is the best sequence in the film it's the, the set piece mm-hmm. of the film mm. But um, he, uh, it's purely down to that set piece too. Like I feel like if they hadn't done that set piece and put such a a, a dot on the eye of the extent of his power mm. that he could have stayed around for the yeah. rest of the film. But but they didn't, and and they they simply had to drop him out of the film because mm. they, they they had set him up to be too powerful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're exactly as, right. As Seb said, like. His power is to run faster than a speeding bullet. Maybe take him if you need to stop a bullet. I don't know. Sort of makes sense. Yeah. You you kind yeah. of get the sense. In a plot where like the final showdown is somebody getting ready to shoot someone with a single bullet. You kind of get the sense he's only in this film because the character was dual owned by Marvel and Fox. And Fox got wind that he was going to be in Avengers 2. And they went, well, if you're using him, we're going to use him. Hmm. I mean, he he, one hundred percent is only in the film for that reason. That's the, but it is this. It's this awkward catch twenty two where, like, you could have had the Quicksilver that they introduced in that opening scene. That's the the kid in the in the basement who's really really fast and can do it, and you know, do all the stuff that he does. You could still have him around with the intent being, okay, we've got this guy who's really fast. He can help us, but then because he's young and inexperienced and kind of an idiot, he potentially screws up in some way or doesn't get it right. Or someone so smashes then, him in the leg. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of ways in which you could still have Quicksilver around. The problem, as you say, is that set piece, which I'm not saying I want to take that set piece out of the film because it's great fun, although equally, it mm. really, it it doesn't, even stylistically, it doesn't fit with the rest of the film. I mean, it's it's so, um, it's it feels to me very post Guardians of the Galaxy with like the music choice and stuff. Although yeah. timeline wise, um, 
would these have been being made simultaneously, wouldn't they? Because they both they were both 2014. So I, I don't they think were. it's a it, maybe it's more of a zeitgeist than a direct influence. But it's it's a great sequence. But it's as I was saying before about this film doesn't feel like a a Brian Singer film, and that that sequence to me feels far more stylish than anything we've seen from him in any other of the superhero films that he's done. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so I don't want to take that out because I really like it, but I equally think the film it doesn't really fit in the film. And I think both, so it's kind of stylistically, if you take it out, you don't have this odd sequence that jars you out of the film for a couple of minutes because nothing else in the film is like it. And secondly, uh, you you solve the plot problem of Quicksilver doesn't, because that's what that sequence shows us is nothing phases him and he can do what he wants and he's too powerful. Now that I just say that, by the way, I've been quite unfair to Brian Singer because Nightcrawler sequence at the start of X2, actually, not a million miles away from this in terms of being really oh, you, you cool can't and stylish. Be, you can't be too unfair to Brian. <laughs> well, no, yes, but you know, <laughs> as a human being, yeah, yes, but yes, also the Nightcrawler sequence is great. Yeah, and so is the plane rescue in Superman Returns. But I don't think we're going to get to Superman Returns anytime soon because that film's <sighs> got two problems with it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 Quicksilver, possibly best thing about the film, also possibly shouldn't be in it. It's a, it's a, it's such a weird conundrum, isn't it? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because he absolutely slots right out. Mm. I mean, not to, not to tangent off, but like that's something similar that I say about, like Seb, you said you would defend like a Batman v Superman, but it's like, like Wonder Woman is pretty great in that movie, but she's the first thing you'd take out of it if you were trying to reshape it to be a coherent film. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is. Very I mean, it's true. even down to he—he he doesn't even. And maybe this is partly Evan Peters, and I—I I, I like Evan Peters, but I don't think he convinces as a nineteen seventies teenager. Like the no, character right there, looks yeah. and feels like a guy from the twenty tens who is into retro stuff, but he—he he doesn't. Yeah, and as, and you know, and I think generally these films are, you know, certainly first class, and I think this to an extent as well are. are good at doing the period stuff and having it feel right i do think it's very strange actually on a on a kind of tangent from that the 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 mystique attempted assassination sequence when it starts cutting to like home film footage and it's obviously been done to i i feel i feel like the reason for it is to show oh, we're seeing what mutants look like to normal people. So here's what they look like mm. through a TV camera of the time or, or just like, you know, a, a little camera that someone's got. But it's jarring. And I don't really, other than that kind of sense of, oh, look, we're seeing them through the public's eyes for the first time. It doesn't feel deftly done enough to actually make that point very well. It's just a weird little moment. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I've never found it particularly jarring, but I can see what you're saying. I think, to be honest, I mean, that se- that whole sequence, that whole fight in the, in the meeting room and everything, that's, I think, uh, to my memory, um, when I saw it in the cinema the first time, and I feel like that's that, I don't know if my memory, well, to, to my memory, when I saw it in the cinema for the first time, and it's always coloured my rewatches of the film, is that is to me sort of like when the film springs to life after a bit of a, a lull that maybe goes on just a pinch too long, going around gathering everything. See, like the rogue stuff, not to jump back to that suddenly, but the rogue stuff feels like it sort of exists to give the future character something to do after a <laughs> very long stretch of film yeah. where they just don't appear mm-hmm. at all. And 
And that very long stretch of film also doesn't have the 70s characters engaging in any set pieces or anything for a long <laughs> period until this this bit at the, uh, at the peace treaty. Like that bit where Magneto bends the bullet past everybody out the window down in an arc. That is baller. Like that is great. <laughs> but and so it's like cool stuff like that. Oh, and then, you know, and then when he takes the, the 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 bird statues in the fountain and uses them like claws to grab beast, that's good too. Mm. I'm just listing off good things <laughs> now, but it's a good sequence. I do, I do feel like the. I mean, you say about the you know the future stuff, and that, I feel like so much of the future stuff is is expendable, and it's like, and I'm not saying oh, I would yeah. want to take it out entirely because i think part of what's really nice about it and part of what i like in this film even though all right so i said this earlier that i don't really buy mcavoy and stewart and fassbender and mckellen as the same character nevertheless it is really really nice in a film that's got the younger versions of the characters to have those scenes with the older versions because like can any of us say that we will ever get tired of seeing patrick stewart and ian mckellen together on screen playing those characters I, w- I would be amazed if the answer was yes for anybody it's it's always an utter joy but i think the problem is that in order to to do the whole setup with the time travel of sending wolverine back and stuff they feel like they've had to build and show the future world around it so they've had to pad it out with these new characters they've brought back the the non-entity version of colossus just so they can go hey look there's another <laughs> character that you recognize um they've given i forgot um, he was in yeah. it until you just said that <laughs> um they've given sean ashmore a beard that again guardians of the galaxy vibe he looks so much like chris pratt in this film <laughs> sean ashmore as, as bobby um you know they, they've and they've they've got those and they've got kitty and everyone just to kind of give you the link but i feel like you could strip so much of that back and actually you could make the future feel more desperate by having fewer mutants around and in a logany kind of way like just professor x and magneto and maybe one or two of the others in order to you know and obviously wolverine in order to do the whole powers sending him back you've got to have kind of kitty there and stuff just have a few of them and it's like the idea is they really is the last hope like they're all already dead that to me feels like something better and if you if you strip back that framing stuff because do we really need all the big long fight sequences with future sentinels they just make me yawn see the thing is though the reason the reason for the future sequences was so that they could cram in those actors right like it was yeah. it was the shadow of avengers hangs over this movie in them going like well marvel did their team up movie we're doing our team up mm. movie let's put everyone in it but it's a team up of characters that nobody cares about <laughs> that is so true but the funny thing is that like the original days of future past comic storyline it's um it, it's weighted to the present but there are two parallel storylines running through it about the last living x-men who in the comic it's um uh, storm colossus and wolverine who are mounting an attack on sentinel headquarters in case the time travel thing doesn't mm-hmm. work mm. and that that's what's absent from from yeah. this film is any kind of parallel strand with the future characters running any kind of uh, contingency. Yeah, and you get you get a sense of it that suddenly something's happening whenever they go looking for Rogue in the Rogue cut, <laughs> but but it's just in support of of just kneeling there with your hands on either side of say, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the only reason they, they they don't go and get Rogue because like oh Rogue is there we we you know Rogue is our friend and and she might help against the Sentinels. It's just like oh we specifically 
need her for this one thing. Um, I yeah, we need her to take Kitty's place because we wrote a story in which Kitty got injured so we could have Rogue come in and take her place. It's like, it's literally just a justification to have Rogue in the film. And I don't necessarily begrudge it for that because, as I said at the start, it's a really, really strange absence mm. for the character who was so, so big to have nothing to do. But, I mean, they still... It was still, you know, not a good way of incorporating her. But that's just the rogue cut. I shouldn't judge the whole film by that, because it is just the weird direct-to-video cut that they made later. Mm. But then without that, it's even weirder. Yeah, because there's even less going on. (laughs) That's Well, that's what I said at the start, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It adds nothing, but the film is still weirder without it. <laughs> How does that work? I feel like both those things I don't are know. true. It's a funny conundrum. <laughs> I mean, one of my one of my favourite additions to the Rogue Cut actually is that there's a, a scene with Bishop and Blink sort of discussing, you know, what will happen if they don't um succeed. And there's a bit where they say something like, you know, do we do we want to die in service of a future you know, if we if we change the past, like the we might never exist. Um, mm. But then sort of you look at what they were doing in the rest of the film and that's exactly what they were doing, which is that they were repeatedly moving from base to base. The Sentinels would catch them. They would send Bishop back in time and everyone else would die. But, you know, he would change the future so they stayed alive. And it's like, yeah, but the versions of you, versions of you have been dying repeatedly and you've been happy to sacrifice yourself over and over and over. Why is mm. this different? Because it's the 70s. Well, because there's a lack of certainty they'll ever be born if they alter history from before they existed. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're still dying. I don't know. I guess it depends on your interpretation of... Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if your view on time travel is that every instance of time travel creates a different parallel universe, then yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> no no time travel mechanics on the podcast, Seb. We only have limited time. <laughs> <laughs> well, they certainly only had limited time for it with this film. That's definitely the Marvel Cinematic Universe version but i'm not sure about the x-men cinematic universe <laughs> mechanics marvel don't know what marvels is <laughs> true that now surely we can find some other nice things to say about this film that we allegedly let me like. see if i can think of something i like um because <laughs> we're not doing I well here at all one of my favorite things is how wolverine is the sort of voice of reason in the movie mm. Mm. Because it is a sort of future version of Wolverine who has all this experience. And like when when he turns up in the film, he's like derelicting his duties as a bodyguard, like having sex with a person he's supposed to be protecting, asleep in a waterbed. And he instantly wakes up and he's like, no, I, I have an actual mission. I'm going to go and do that. I find that a good a good position for Wolverine, like to have gone from being the sort of clueless um newbie that he was an x-men to being the driving force like the guy who turns up and says like hey you're the x-men get your shit together yeah it's it's exactly when when we were talking before about about him being such a good anchor for this it's it's exactly that and it is you know i mean the film explicitly says it in dialogue and it's why it works so well is that he used to be that guy and then professor x saved him and put him on the right path and put him on the path to being who he is now and he's basically coming back to return that favor like he's the together one and professor x is the is the complete mess and it's it's a flip of the relationship that they had in the first <laughs> yeah film. that that idea is great something that really doesn't work is when the first time they meet and they have that little sort of conversation and he goes like oh i remember you 
from that cameo in oh, first class oh, and you're like, oh, th- why? That. Why are you doing this? There are two things that annoy me about that moment, right? I'll bet, there's, I'll bet at least one of them is exactly the same thing as the one that annoyed me, <laughs> right. which is, that's not what yes, he said. Right. That wasn't the line. So the first thing is, it annoys me that he remembers that meeting yeah. because he shouldn't, yeah. because they only saw the back yeah. of his head. They didn't know who he was. There's no reason why Charles should actually remember him. The second thing is, having remembered the meeting, the fact that he misquotes the best line from first class yeah. and you're all when he when he's saying it and he's about to say it 90 percent of people <laughs> who've already watched first class and who are watching this film and who are interested enough in these films will be saying in their heads go, go fuck, fuck yourself yeah <laughs> and instead he says fuck, fuck off, off. <sighs> It's and a- it just feels like an excuse to get the one f right. bomb in for the pg-13 <sighs> rating like yeah there's another one later on, but I think it's probably only in the road cut. Oh, I don't even remember it. I did. I did notice another f bomb later on. Yeah, but then I think I think generally the yeah the the road cut. I don't know if it's it it's probably not rated differently, but it's definitely got extra because there's sort of it's. I think it's only in the road cut that's got that that quite saucy, uh, um, mystique and beast. Scene it is. As well. Yeah, I was watching it and it's like, I do remember that the rogue cut has stuff in it other than just the rogue scenes added, but I was watching it. It's been so long since I watched the original version of the film, I, I couldn't remember what was and wasn't, but I was watching that scene specifically last night and I was thinking... Was this in the original? No, that that absolutely wasn't. Mm. No, fair enough. I mean, it's it's a funny scene because it's like it's not an illogical scene because obviously that's where those characters were mm. left in the last film. So it mm. seems like it's something that should be picked up on. But at the same time, uh, no. Why would you know? I feel like <laughs> it's only really there because Nicholas Holt and Jennifer Lawrence were a couple at the time. It's a it's, oh, it's were the they? I did not <laughs> know that. I didn't know that. Well, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, it, it seemed like the whole idea was only in the first movie to sort of facilitate Beast becoming blue. Yeah. Uh, because Mystique is also blue, and yeah. I guess that's all you need. <laughs> and yet that was the movie that they put a Zazel in and didn't make any kind of connection between him and Nightcrawler and Mystique. Yeah. X-Men movies are weird, I man. mean, Zazel is dead in this film as well, so you have to wonder where Nightcrawler yeah. even came yeah. from, right? <laughs> <laughs> is he an IVF baby? Not from him. I mean, I think it's despite the fact that we're kind of I want to talk about positives from this film, and I mean, I, I I think I sort of I packaged a load of them up when I said I just think there's I think there's stretches of the film where it just rattles along doing enjoyable yeah. stuff. Well, I do think just as another criticism, I think Hank, who is someone who I really really liked in the first one. He's a bit of a vacuum in this film. <laughs> he is. Yeah, uh, he sucks. He sort of, he kind of, I almost don't want to say it. It almost feels unfair. He kind of gets the Cyclops role in this film. Ooh, come on. Come on, no. Oh, that's completely <laughs> accurate, but oh. <laughs> yeah, he's just the one that's there to be kind of like the yes man for the professor. Doesn't yeah. really do much yeah. to, to help. Out. I, I he mean, wears glasses like the idea. And... What, what's. what's what was with the idea that the professor was injecting himself with something? You got a serum that can mend your broken spine, have you? You want to share that with anybody? Like, what's that about? Like, I understand the idea of maybe taking a serum to deaden his powers because he doesn't want to be in touch with that world anymore. But, mm. but, 
The fact that it also <laughs> lets him walk? How does that even work and why? Yeah. Like when they have that that dramatic scene, it's like, are you sure about this? And they do it, but uh, I, 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 you know what? I don't even remember what he says, but I think he says yes. And then we have the big dramatic pan up the wheelchair, which isn't even the same wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did like this film, I swear to God, but... <laughs> yeah. The problem is, right, this is, this is one of those films that from moment to moment it's enjoyable yeah because it's characters mm. you like doing stuff you like like you know when wolverine jumps out of the bed and he gets several clips of bullets unloaded into him and he just heals the bullets out of him you're sitting there going yeah fuck Wolf- yeah this is wolverine yeah. <laughs> but then when yeah. you think about why he's doing it and what happens you're like that didn't make any sense i mean and i i i, I don't generally judge a lot of films harshly for that you know i mean uh, there Mm. are some films that exist that if you stop and think about them too much they do start to come apart but then just don't do that and it's all right (laughs) because it's it's a it's a film it's about experiencing a narrative and a story in the moment and not trying to Mm. unpack it and find little things to put in the wikipedia (laughs) article that you can complain about hey this is a podcast but yeah but but uh, but uh, but then there but then there are films where you can't help but noticing it in the experience of watching it yeah this is one of the one of the problems i had with days of future past and with the x-men franchise generally is that because they don't because they don't address their own continuity in Mm. like any satisfying manner you're sitting there and instead of watching the film you're going like why has he got bone claws again or why (laughs) what happened in like why is magneto alive and that that in itself is distracting yeah no i can't uh, i can't take issue with that at all like there, there is no sense of character continuity. There's no sense of growth. There's no sense of anybody uh, going through a... Per- like, you get X1 to X2, and you get Wolverine's story discovering his origins. That works. And mm-hmm. it's the last time those films truly work in that capacity. Even though X2 sets up Dark Phoenix at yeah. the end, what they actually wind up doing with Dark Phoenix <laughs> has nothing to do with what they set up at the end of X3. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Firebird under the water here specifically. Specifically, yeah. It's bad storytelling because you're sitting there with questions that aren't going to get answered. And it's like, you do, they don't have to address every tiny thing. But if they just ignore it, if they ignore their own story, like you can't get invested because you're just lost in, in thinking about no. things that aren't happening in the movie. Yeah. Can I can I give you what I think is actually the worst example of this in terms of the film X films or film in general? <laughs> no, in in the in in the X Men series and in this film, in terms of that thing of disregarding, just not being bothered enough about your own continuity because you've decided that to do a particular mm-hmm. thing or to reference a particular thing is cool, and all it does is it snaps you out and makes you go, "Well, hang on, why have you done that? That's stupid." And what it is is the very very end of the film. Oh my god! When... Yes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Christ, what the right. fuck is that? I was watching <laughs> so, the road cut. I was like, did they take this out for the road cut? Because, and they didn't. Oh, please. Sorry. I'm sorry. You set me off. Carry on. <laughs> so, well, I'm assuming we're talking about the same um, moment. Yeah. When Wolverine yep. is fished out of the water, having been buried in the water by, by Magneto, and he gets pulled out of the water and looming over him is Striker. 
And we've had this arc throughout the entire film where we've seen a young version of Stryker and we know who Stryker is and we know his importance to Wolverine. And we've seen, and I think it's a nice thread throughout the film where Stryker is not yet the man who he'll become, but we can see over the course of the film he already doesn't like mutants and this is making him even worse and even more hardline about how much he hates mutants. And it's a good little background character arc for that's the William Stryker who we are going to see in played by Danny Houston in X-Men Origins and obviously Brian Cox in X2. He's got the link to Wolverine. It works. And the end of this and, film, and, it's and, a nice... And it also like ends Wolverine's story in a good place because it means you know yes. he still went through the Weapon X experience, which means he still exactly. ultimately went to Professor X for help. And the character still went through a same the similar arc. Yeah, it goes, okay, how did Wolverine get from being where he is in the 70s before old Wolverine gets into his head? After that, what happens to him? How does he, you know, does the timeline still shake out? And yes, Stryker picks him up. So you're like, okay, that's how he gets involved in Weapon X. Maybe it won't play out exactly as it did in X-Men Origins Wolverine. It obviously won't because there's no sign of, of Victor and that film's just completely disregarded. But effectively, the Weapon X storyline is going to play out as we expect because this film has left 70s Wolverine being picked up by William Stryker who's going to take him and experiment on him and turn him into Weapon X and then it turns out that Stryker is Mystique. (laughs) Why? What What the fuck was that? So so Mystique is gonna go, is gonna pretend to be Stryker for thirty years, and I will I will bet you any amount of money that was not filmed with that intent. No, I don't believe in that the was slightest. filmed and written to be just Stryker, and then they digitally put those eyes in there for some godforsaken yeah. reason. And then when they do the fucking sequel, when they do Apocalypse, Wolverine is at Weapon yeah. X in Stryker's custody. And Mystique is back to being Mystique. So, like, she pretended to be Stryker for a bit and then handed him to to the real Stryker. That's not a continuity (laughs) error. That's just dumb shittery. Like, that was just (laughs) stupid. It just and that is that was a real, you know. Yeah. So it's a bad beat to end the film on. Yeah. For a, for a film that I was enjoying generally quite a bit, even though I do think it kind of goes off the rails in the last act. To drop that at the very very end, it is the kind of thing that makes you walk out <laughs> of a film and go, "That film is worse than I thought it was." While for most of while I was watching it. It's so unconsidered. Because the people making it were so stupid. (laughs) And and yet, I still completely agree with your analysis that puts it in the top half of the the X-Men movie quality spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I agree that it's in the top half of the spectrum, but (laughs) I don't think that makes it good. Well, it's it is because as we've discussed on this podcast, a lot of the X Men films actually aren't very good. I mean, this is the, my, my my ranking is leaving Deadpool aside. By the way, well, yes, well, I mean, I mean, I don't think we're under. I don't think people are under any delusions about bad ones being good, though. Like nobody thinks X Men Origins is good. Nobody thinks X Three is good. Although I do think X Three gets a bit of a harder rap than it deserves. And I mean, X One is a product of its time. <laughs> And, you know, everybody knows Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix were bad. So, you know. But again, Dark Phoenix is not worse than X3. No, I agree with that. Oh, no, maybe I don't. I don't you think, think so. it's not worse than X3. No, I think I think Dark Phoenix is the worst. 
Like Dark Phoenix, no, everything, everything that's bad about Dark Phoenix is magnified a hundredfold by the fact that it's laboured with these stupid decade leaps in this post-reboot continuity and the fact that it was the final X-Men film and was such a whimper for the whole thing to go out on. But like as a film, like it wasn't a, it wasn't a shit awful piece of yeah, filmmaking. That's what, that's it was, <laughs> well, you know, they say apathy is worse than hate. Uh <laughs> I haven't watched it since the cinema, you know, and I'm the one who owns X-Men Origins Wolverine and Apocalypse on Blu-ray. Apocalypse is the only one I haven't rewatched, But um, I haven't got that one, so I don't know what that says. <laughs> I still think not a single scene in Dark Phoenix is accomplishing what it sets out to accomplish. But that's a different podcast. I think that's fair. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we gave that a big kicking. I mean, I think Apocalypse is probably the worst. Is, is, is Apocalypse or is X-Men Origins the worst one? I'd rather rewatch. I'd rather go back and rewatch Origins because I mean we I mean it was very early days of this podcast that we covered it and I you know it, we definitely didn't come out going oh that was good but I think we came out enjoying uh, quite a few aspects of it especially pretty much any time it was about Logan and Creed actually it worked pretty all right yeah it does have that good opening sequence yeah and it and it's got more of Hugh Jackman than than Apocalypse has. So on that basis, I would take it over Apocalypse. I haven't rewatched either of them in so long. I I genuinely don't know. Like my gut wants to say Apocalypse because I was so let down by Apocalypse after fifteen <laughs> years and however many films of Magneto, 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 <laughs> Magneto, and then to finally do one of the other X Men's other big three bad guys and. It up and it's it's Oscar deal. Isaac. I think we were talking about this this recently. Like, it's one of the most like noticeable and like visibly charismatic actors in Hollywood of the last few years. And yeah, if you were if you were sort of caught on the hop and someone said to you, "Who played Apocalypse in X in <laughs> X Men Apocalypse?" I don't know if you'd immediately answer that it was Oscar I know, Isaac. right? <laughs> he should have been a Thanos, shouldn't he? Yeah, like Apocalypse should have been a mocap effect. First and foremost, like it wouldn't fix the film, but it would it would go a long way to like to to massaging it in. Like Apocalypse should not be shorter than most other characters in the film. Like <laughs> you know, he's sitting there doing a big raging speech in the hallway of the X Mansion and Havoc standing over there six inches shorter than him. And it's like, what are you so mad about, little guy? It's like we... just not. I mean, I mean. People always make that Ivan Ooze comparison mm -hmm. because there was that one, the first photo we ever saw of Apocalypse was specifically a pink tinged mm -hmm. lighting scene photo of him. And he wasn't actually that color in the film. <laughs> like he was, I, I, I quite liked the general design of him. He had the lips. The lips he were like- He definitely didn't a, have a giant A on his belt. <laughs> high up on my checklist of shit you put on Apocalypse. You can't remember if he had tubes on his arms. I think he did. <laughs> That is the true loss. But yeah, it should have been a mocap effect. Apocalypse is like my favourite X-Men villain as well, so I was really disappointed with that movie. And he should have had a clearly defined power set. And who doesn't love Apocalypse? And it's like, I mean, <laughs> Old so, so much of what modern audiences know and like, well, I say modern audiences, audiences our age specifically, um, a lot of it is born of the X-Men cartoon. Because Absolutely. that's where a lot of us, I think particularly people in this corner of the world, um, first encountered the X-Men. I know it's where I first encountered the X-Men. And certainly, although it's 
it is a very melodramatic cartoon that doesn't maybe a hundred percent stand up on rewatch. I mean, it's it's coming to Disney Plus at the end of the month, so we'll find out. There are certain like that. It's apocalypse is always going to be my benchmark for. Uh, for apocalypses. I am the rocks of the eternal yes. shore. Yeah. Crash against me and be broken. <laughs> That's like, my favorite where was that? Line. Of course it is. It's friggin' brilliant. <laughs> I am as far beyond mutants as they are beyond you. I am eternal. Uh, perfect. Where was that? Can I just say at this point how glad I am that we've we've had some Chris voices on this podcast because my main reason for getting you over from from Sonic Uh, the Comedy Podcast was to get some voice work from you. Well, uh, I'm glad to have have performed. (laughs) We won't do a whole request section then. Let's not. So we've got a bit off track from the movie. I don't perform well (laughs) under pressure. Yeah, sorry, but but whenever you talk about one of these movies, it always spirals out into the rest of them, doesn't it? <laughs> it does rather. Well, that's the and you know, and, and that's why I, I do think I think the interesting thing about this film, it's, this is this is this is almost me coming to sort of an, an epiphany about it is almost everything that I like about it is as a result of its position in this series of films, and almost everything that I think fails about it is as a result of its position <laughs> in this series of films. Like, of all yeah, the X-Men yeah, yeah. films... Yeah, I'd never really thought about it like that before. It is but... the one that is the most part of this series, which is why it's ironic, I think, that it's by far the most successful. Like, it's the highest grossing one. It's the one, but it's the one where you need to have... Well, I suppose it's the end game effect, but yeah. it's like, it's the one where you, you, you know, it's... it's Well, I mean, I'm not going to make the argument that you need to have seen the other Avengers no. films <laughs> to have seen Endgame, because the whole point about Infinity War and Endgame and that series of films is that every film gives you what you need if you haven't actually seen all the others. That's what they're so brilliant at anyway but but even then like endgame and infinity war are a culmination of a story that has been told whereas the uh, as we've established in the course of this discussion the x-men films do not have any kind (laughs) of building story like the the people who will get the maximum enjoyment out of this film are the people who have been with the series from the start irrespective of that complete absence of sensible continuity or character building because it's just exciting to see that again it is the cinematic universe effect in in effect um and it works even now you know it, it's it's still just exciting and fun to watch and to see these characters come together and and i i mean yeah. no apologies for that either like it's 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 a very surface level thing but the surface is the thing you see the what's on the surface matters <laughs> yeah but that's it, and I, I think it's just that there's, I, I think there's in the stuff that I do really like, there's there's that potential for, uh, for it to be more because you know as I say, it's, first class gave. I know we bang on about first class, but I just really really love that film, yeah, first class and it just excellent. gave such a good platform to to do more with, and and this film does some of that this film goes yeah you want to see after seeing what happened to these guys in the 60s you want to see what happens to them next in the early 70s Low. i do also take the point that actually we could have happily had some more 60s adventures with those characters even so it does that thing of moving them on i mean part of it also is that we we finally get to see the original movie cast characters unencumbered 
uh, 2010s special effects and cinema <laughs> and, and uh, superhero cinema uh, settings instead of the weird compromised yeah. suburban uh, uh, superheroics that we got in the other ones you know like yes twisting the statue of liberty around or lifting the golden gate bridge is a cool effect but you know that's as far as it goes and then they just fight in a quarry for the rest <laughs> of the thing you know or fight in in front of yeah. gene's house in this and literally in the suburbs i wasn't even thinking of that but it actually was a fight in one of the big set pieces of x3 is a fight in a suburban garden <laughs> in a street yeah part of the appeal of days of future past was definitely finally getting to see um like I'll always give the X-Men movies the respect they deserve for uh, for blazing the trail for superhero cinema to where it is now. And, you know, people always whine about the yellow spandex joke from the first movie and all that. And I firmly believe, even now, 20 years on, that the things that movie did were the things that movie had to do in order to be taken seriously and succeed to the extent that it did. And that, and that pushing it any further into the weirder, more fantastical uh, comic book arms would have turned audiences of that time three years after Batman and Robin off. Mm. I think it's it's historically very important in that regard, but there's no denying then that it was really exciting to get to see all those actors from that first run from 14 years beforehand come back and get to play in the playground that they had essentially built the foundation of. You know, that that is mm. and was and remains a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Convincingly gone to bat for Days of Future Past. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've gone to bat for the for the the Brian Singer scenes crashing headlong into to the other stuff. Um, I would just it's an interesting point actually about about the, what you say about the costume thing because I I think that's that's definitely true and I, I fully agree that you couldn't have had you know X Men style X Men costumes in that first film. I always think it's really interesting that only two years later you get Spider Man, which absolutely does go in the direction of here's a suit that looks like the comics. But I think the difference is it's Spider Man and it's yeah. it's like it's the most classic piece of, of costume design. Well, as we, as we said before, Singer's, Singer's X-Men take is less a superhero movie and more a sci-fi movie. So they're actually playing yeah, to yeah, different yeah. genres. And you, But then you also, you look back at Spider-Man and you see how much the visuals of Spider-Man have dated, to be honest. Like, they did. They looked a bit dated even then, but because of the the the, mm. uh, the artistic approach that X Men took, although it's an artistic choice of its time, uh, visually the costumes. Well, we, you saw they were able to recreate the black leather X costumes for the future segments of Days of Future Past, and they looked fine as fine mm. today as they did then. Mm-hmm compared to the, the way that the, the Raimi suit didn't date so well. It's it's ridiculous how the costumes have gone over the course of the, the X-Men films. Yeah. It's like Because if you actually look at it chronologically, they start out in yellow and blue. Then they... Well, they don't have costumes in this in the 70s because, as, as we said, no they're, they're not... The 70s characters aren't being the X-Men in this film. Then in the 80s, they switch from the yellow and blue to Jim Lee-style X-Men costumes, which aren't, like, fully bright and colourful, but which give oh. each character an individual colour scheme and have like ridiculous over the top designs we only really see them in the final scene anyway well yeah this is the thing we see them in the final scene and we go oh great we're going to get those costumes in the next film they're really the X-Men now it's been 15 <laughs> years and however yeah. many films and now they're finally really really <laughs> the, X-Men the X-Men with X-Men. the real costumes oh never mind and then in Dark Phoenix which is set in 1992 they go back to wearing the costumes that they were wearing in 1960 
63, 62, 30 years earlier. Like the, the, the year that it would have been most appropriate for them to wear Jim Lee-inspired X-Men yeah. outfits. Uh, and admittedly, though, they did mostly look like dog shit in that final scene of Apocalypse, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, but they could have done better versions. Well, maybe not on the budget of <laughs> Dark Phoenix from the look of it. And then, then eight years later, they're in black leather. And then black leather is what they will wear from the year 2000 all the way to the year 2023. <laughs> I mean, that's less time wearing black leather than it is wearing the blues and yellows then, isn't it? True, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, though, I don't think it is possible to do a genuine Wolverine costume in live action. We'll see. I'm sure we'll see soon because he's coming to the Marvel Universe eventually. We'll see what Tyron Edgerton wears. People, well, I mean, I mean, you joke and everything, but it's like what you were saying about Hugh Jackman earlier. It's like Wolverine is going to be the single hardest instance of recasting in 21st mm-hmm. century cinema. That is fair yeah. to say. I can't think of another. I can only think of one other that would be harder, and that, and they won't do that, and that's Robert Downey Jr. Oh, sure, yeah, but he he did. But they won't so... do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I. But I think with Wolverine, though, I think they established early enough that this version of Wolverine isn't a costume guy. So it's never really mattered that that they've never done a Wolverine costume. Because let's face it, Wolverine's costume in this series of films is a white vest. Yeah. That is what his costume is. You know what (laughs) makes me wonder is, though, I wonder if in the general audience, popular culture, mental picture of Wolverine... What is it? Is it just genuinely Hugh Jackman in jeans and a wife beater? I reckon, yeah. I, th- I think if you ask someone to... <laughs> a normal person. Not comics person. To, yeah. <laughs> ask, ask a normie to draw Wolverine. They'll draw him in the string vest, definitely. Not string. <laughs> it's not a string vest, is it? Because it's not, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> He's not yeah. Hagar. <laughs> the wife yeah. beater. So, I mean, it does make you wonder what approach then will a Marvel Studios film even take? Will, will they go for... Will they want to do something completely visually divorced from the Fox X men series to, to to make that clear delineation to make their put their stamp on it and say this is not that or will they i think they will give him a, a suit that he's given at weapon x <laughs> oh yeah that's probably one way of doing it. oh man that was the one good bit of apocalypse that was wasn't great it? yeah in the in the full vr headset <laughs> i mean it wasn't it wasn't good in the sense that yeah yeah yes like it wasn't good in the sense that it was completely pointless and you could lift the whole thing out of the film and it wouldn't change anything about it but whenever they panned <laughs> up and whenever you when you realized it was going to be full barry windsor smith vr headset weapon x wolverine oh yeah that was cool yeah that was the one good thing <laughs> in that film <laughs> Okay, I think I think we're done, are we? I just yeah. So I just wanted to. I think the last thing, and actually, it's, it already ties into some of the stuff we were we were talking about in terms of that that revisiting of the of the two thousand films. I mean, <laughs> given that they didn't actually do anything with it afterwards, uh, how do you feel about the end of this film? Basically, saying that the continuity of well, possibly not X2, but certainly Last Stand just didn't happen. And this idea that actually those versions of those characters are back and could, I mean, they couldn't now because they're not making any more. But at the time that this film was made and released, they could theoretically have gone and done a new film with James Marsden and Famke Janssen and Kelsey Grammer and (laughs) everybody in. I don't think I would have wanted them to, because it was just like you say, you know, why do they even keep making more films after this? But how do you like it as 
as as an ending for this sort of how 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 does how did that make you feel those characters suddenly turning up again i was pretty okay with it to be honest but i mean you know it's a funny thing because and uh, I mean, maybe this is an especially like nerdy or comics born way of thinking about it. But if the alteration of history happens in 77, right? So therefore the original trilogy of X-Men movies are, didn't happen or, or at least Dark Phoenix didn't happen or an X, X1 happened in a different capacity. Well, that then consigns the first 12 years of X-Men films to the bad <laughs> timeline. Like those films are are the story of the timeline where the X-Men failed. So that's mm. a bit miserable when you think about it like that. So then to see, and I, you know, personally, I don't think I knew, I don't, I don't know if it had been announced uh, when I saw the film. I know I didn't know James Marston and Famke Janssen were going to come back for cameos at the end. So it was exciting. And I was, I was happy to see them again. And I was like, Oh, this is, it's the good timeline. You know, the, 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 you know, not just in a real world sense where the bad movies didn't happen, but it mean the world, it does mean that the other films are the part of the, the failed timeline, the bad timeline, the dark timeline, but it does mean that they get to come back and, and have a happy ending. And it works in a real world sense because X3 was, you know, a bad ending, particularly for Marsden Cyclops and, <laughs> yeah, so yes, I was happy oh, about it, to, to give you a simpler answer than that. <laughs> but it is weird that that sort of Logan Logan aside, like, given that the future timeline's wiped out, that scene is chronologically, and this brings us to why we were covering it on this podcast, that is chronologically the, the last moment yep. in this series of films. I mean, it's a better last moment than the final <laughs> scene of Dark Phoenix. So. <laughs> that, I think, is undeniable. And it's nice that the X Men got a happy ending. I mean, and then, of course, but then, of course, then they they have to do the flashback and fuck the whole thing up with Mystique Ugh. Striker. But you know, if they could have ended it there <laughs> in the future, yeah, so close. But I mean, if it hadn't been, if they had just kept the ending as it was obviously filmed to be, and it had been just Striker, I I still think that would have been a fine place to go out. You know, like just one of those things where yes, the future has changed, but certain things are immutable. The the mm. tides of time are against you, sort of thing. You know, <laughs> brings brings it all full circle. Exactly. Yeah. It's a tying together circular, yeah. Takes the character back to where you know he was at the start of of the first X-Men movie. You know, it's like, uh, well, I mean, it's like, yes, we did the origin movie already, but this was Wolverine's deal at the the start of the very first X-Men movie. No memories as a result of experimentation, went to Professor X for help. And then the film ended, closed the loop by showing you how that happened in the first place. And they fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) But all in all, I think this is... You know, I mean, aside from that weirdness of it's so rooted in the the existing characters that it feels like you you would need to know them all to see it. I can see why this is the the biggest and the most successful because I mean oh, it yeah. is the it's the biggest X Men film in terms of the well I mean Apocalypse tries to up the stakes and and fails because it fails as a film but yeah. this is this is the one that does you know this is bigger than any of the X Men films had been before it and I think so for all of the bigger. stuff that we've spent an hour and a half pick, picking apart I yeah. think it it generally succeeds at that and it succeeds at being enjoyable and i'm not going to get into because we could start off a whole of the podcast over whether the x-men movies as a whole feel what you would call x-meny and and james is the the big x-men fan here who could who could go into whether or not they are truly x-meny but i think this film succeeds at being an enjoyable superhero film that to me feels just about x-meny enough 
in at yeah. least as much as what the films are um <laughs> to be yeah I, I i like it it's it's more x many than any other x-man film that had come before it i think uh it, well it depends i suppose that depends how you define x-manishness <laughs> my pick for the most x many x-men film is deadpool 2 <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> I mean, I suppose if you're talking about um, uh, the best use of the metaphor, uh, perhaps this is not it. But in terms of big, wild, time-spanning action with good mutants, evil mutants, old friends on both sides coming together and breaking apart, giant robots. (laughs) And completely incoherent plotting. Incoherent plotting, blokes with claws whose every vein is trying to burst through the surface of their skin. <laughs> you know, it's if if that is the yardstick by which you measure X menishness, then I, I think Days of Future Past is is the most X. It does right by the the characters, most characters. It does right by, and I think against all odds, it manages to do as right as possible by the story of Days of Future Past itself, shy of doing the Sentinel self awareness thing. Because I think back to the X Men cartoon and how it did, where where again most of us will have first encountered the story of Days of Future's Past where um, uh, the only real change they made to it for the audience members who haven't seen the show is that um, they replaced Kitty Pride with Bishop, who was a new character from the X-Men comics from recent years, who was also a character who had traveled back in time from the days of future past future. <laughs> and they uh, like he came from a future where he believed Gambit had betrayed the X-Men, and they rolled that into the idea of the Senator Kelly assassination by having it be that Mystique impersonated Gambit to carry out the execution. And... Um, that didn't. That version of the story didn't have a parallel um, storyline set in the future, um, with the uh, with the future version of the X Men trying to accomplish anything while uh, while the character was in the past. And I don't know what point I'm trying to make by pointing that out, but. Uh... <laughs> Well, I, I would just like to say that I uh, I love the suggestion that there might be anybody listening to this podcast who hasn't watched the 90s X-Men cartoon. <laughs> 90s X-Men cartoon was nearly 30 years ago, Seb. You never know. Yeah. Oh, don't. Yeah. don't. Please don't. Like I say, it's going to be on Disney Plus soon, so you'll all be free yeah. <laughs> before long. All right. Yeah, that was a bit, a bit all over the place, but I feel like we made our points... <laughs> Yeah, and 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 as I say, you know, be, because we have already done. Uh, I mean, well, we we would have done X Men Apocalypse anyway in terms of where it would have fallen chronologically. But we've done X Men Apocalypse. We've done Logan. Uh, we may at some point do New Mutants if if that even counts. Still don't think if it, it counts. ever comes out. Um, that's it for the X Men films for now. That's uh, you know, given how early we started. Until Marvel make their own X Men films. Well, until they make their own, but that'll be a different series. So that's that feels like a big moment. That's uh, you know. We've 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 hit a big five years in yeah. the making. Is that I mean is that is that the first time we finished a series because we haven't finished Superman and we haven't finished Batman. Oh, we finished the Nolan we finished Batman. Spider-Man. We finished Spider Man. Yeah, they're only three films each though. But yeah, um, James, have you got a game for us before we go? Have I got a game? Ooh. So I haven't got a game. What I have got is um, I'm going to refer to an old Den of Geek article I wrote when Days of Future Past came out, <laughs> um, which is 11 questions about Days of Future Past. The film or the comic uh, or the cartoon? The film. Or... <laughs> okay. This is one of the most successful pieces I ever wrote on Den of Geek. I remember it had some ludicrously high number of um, shares on Facebook, which 
I think speaks to the number of questions people came out of this movie with. So I'm just going to chuck some, I'm going to chuck these questions at you guys. I want you to tell me, is there a definitive answer or not? Let's have Seb do it first, because I think, Chris, you'll have a better understanding of these. (laughs) Cool. So I'm going to start with question one. How is Professor Xavier alive in the future? Because if you remember, Uh. last time we saw Patrick Stewart, he was being vaporized by dark Phoenix. Well, no, we heard him say Moira at the end of Last Stand, so his... We heard him say Moira. Last time we saw him, he was being turned into dust. Yes. Um, his consciousness inhabited another body that eventually, for whatever reason, ended up looking like Patrick Stewart. <laughs> I, I seem to recall hearing that in an earlier draft of the film, or maybe the novelization of the film or something, it was said that the the patient at Muir Island was his twin brother or something? <laughs> that so is correct, Cassandra yes. Nova. Yeah, baby! <laughs> <laughs> so... As an addendum to that question, uh, why can Professor Xavier not walk, given that he's in his uh, previously brain-dead clone sibling? Because at some point in the years since, him and Magneto had another argument that led to Magneto throwing another piece of metal at him. (laughs) That is the only logical explanation, yes. (laughs) Okay, so um, question two, Seb, we'll start with you again. Uh, Why are Wolverine's claws not bone in the future because someone done fucked up or (laughs) magneto obviously grafted some adamantium to him at some point magneto would have been my guess as well since there were bodies there there is no canon explanation for this but that is the that is the fan wank i came up with at the time (laughs) so question three how did magneto get his powers back because if you remember in at the end of the last stand he was powerless and in prison i look and (laughs) a chess piece may be moved but yeah um yeah the the cure well that's it isn't it the cure wasn't permanent (laughs) (laughs) that would also explain why rogue is uh not cured as well i mean again they never address this you you just have to assume based on what we saw that the the mutant cure developed in the last stand was not permanent isn't that just the x-men through and through well doesn't that just sum up the (laughs) x-men movies oh sorry we were both literally saying exactly the same thing there doesn't that just sum up the x-men movies they never address it you i I mean i i I was actually saying that not just the x-men movies i I feel like the x-men in general relies on you figuring stuff out for yourself (laughs) as much as possible uh so question four at the end of the wolverine you will remember that magneto and xavier uh accost wolverine in an airport and recruit him to help them fight a specific cause why were they doing that exactly i mean i feel like don't we we see a news report or something on a television in the airport like the implication is that like sentinels that's are a good coming. point though because it's like it takes them like 10 years well, well no because because no because in the original timeline the point was sentinels never happened in the 70s mm-hmm. uh it was only because they got a hold of mystique and then built set the morphing sentinels of the future at some point after that it's only because of mystique's interference in the 70s uh, or rather the you know their field their field the 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 fact that Trask isn't assassinated in the 70s is what, is what allows him to then build the 70s Sentinels, which didn't exist in the original timeline. <laughs> so when, when Professor X and Magneto... So the reason they're getting him... The reason they're recruiting Wolverine is because Sentinels are being built for the first time. <laughs> yes, in the, in the noughties. 
You, yeah, that is and, correct. And basically, yes. for a decade, Wolverine is no help whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how long it took Magneto to get the metal back on the claws. They they accost him in an airport and they say they say Wolverine, we need your help to stop Sentinels, which are being built for the first time now. And then it turns out there are prob- different problems later yeah. that happen to involve time travel. Well, doesn't that just sum up the <laughs> X Men? <laughs> Yep. So, Different um, problems later involving time travel. Are we doing all 11 of these, by the way? <laughs> yeah, we'll just rattle through them quickly. So question five. How come Kitty Pride has the ability to transmit Bishop's mind back in time when her mutant powers only let her phase through walls? Because the movie required that to be the case. I like to imagine it's a... No, I wouldn't use the phrase secondary mutation. But it is But one. it's a very crisp... Well, yeah. But it's a very crisp Claremonty approach to the idea of phasing, where she lets not merely molecules slip through matter, but consciousness slip through the fabric of time. <laughs> I really like that explanation, because that, that would be a sort of secondary mutation or secondary application of her powers. Yeah. You know, it's like if something happened in a story where she got juiced up with some kind of in some kind of situation where her powers got boosted to some ludicrous level, you know, like Wolverine healing back from a drop of blood or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the ultimate expression of phasing. the the Essentially the ability to live four-dimensionally, to shift your molecules and consciousness, not merely through the physical plane, but through the four dimensions. I like that idea. Um, at the time I wrote ma- Beats Me Magic Gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Chris, your explanation is much better. (laughs) Question six we've covered. I wrote, Wolverine gets taken away by Stryker at the end of Days of Future Past, except Stryker is actually Mystique. What's that about? Uh, you you didn't uh, you didn't expect the level of hatred we both (laughs) had for the scene. Uh, Question seven. What happened to all those guys from First Class? They dead. So I want you to know. Yeah. Who? What? What are the locations of the following characters? So Azazel, deed, dead. Yes, Angel, dead. We see that, deed. Yeah. Yep, Emma Frost yeah. and Banshee. We get deed. told that they're dead. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Havoc. Uh, Vietnam. He's in it. Isn't yeah, he's he? in it. He's in it. He goes to yeah. Vietnam. He is. He is in Vietnam. Although they never call him Havoc. They may not even call him Alex. If, like me, you're bad with faces, you don't realise he's in the film until you read the credits. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know if they do call him that or not, yeah. <laughs> um, question eight. If it's 1975, how come Quicksilver has those over-the-ear headphones separates that didn't exist until about three years ago? Because, as I say, he's he's a kid from the 2010s who loves retro stuff. He's, he's, <laughs> he's been sent back from 2014 by Kitty Pride to be in this film he's so <laughs> fast he's ahead of current trends and technology <laughs> fair enough um question question nine what happens to the wolverine that was in wolverine's body before he woke up in the future because wolverine returns to 2023 and it's happy 2023 he's already there so a version of wolverine has just disappeared <laughs> oh that's a bit grim i never thought about that before it is grim isn't it that's pretty yeah. grim yeah <laughs> there's there's no happy answer to no. that one so no, I think there's we'll not to is there <laughs> i'm just I'm, I'm trying to think of a way because obviously what's weird is the fact that what you've got is a wolverine who has lived through the bad timeline 
and who has lived through a time from 1973 to 2023, none of which now happened. Yeah, he has just skipped like 40, 50 years of history that he changed but has not experienced. So I feel like the version of Wolverine that woke up in the water and was taken away by Stryker and lived up to 2023... (sighs) It's just gone. (sighs) Dead. Yeah, there's nowhere. I'm trying to see if there's a gap somewhere that that he... But no, there isn't. He's just... Yeah. I think, charitably speaking, um, I think Wolverine quantum leaped back into his old body (laughs) and he has a Swiss cheese memory where he remembers both versions of history. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the guy... The version from the 70s was an asshole, so... Either that, or you could have it be that Professor X could give him his memories back somehow. Sure, sure. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's, that's a little more cheery. viable right now where the X-Men comics are right now uh, than it indeed, was when that indeed. comic was published. <laughs> yeah, that imagine, if you, imagine if you're Cyclops, though, because you can just go up to Wolverine now and be like, hey, Wolverine, you owe me 20 quid from last week. <laughs> <laughs> stay away from my girl and stay away from my wallet. Oh, well, and well, that, well then therein lies the question is, do they ever let on to anyone else outside of Wolverine and <laughs> Professor X what has happened we'll never know we'll never know um question 10 where was Nightcrawler slash Angel slash Stanley <laughs> oh no deed <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I just thought there were some notable omissions from this collision of every X-Men character except for Nightcrawler and Angel yeah Nightcrawler was kind of mm. a bit conspicuous by his absence wasn't he well did anybody no, like Nobody cared that Angel wasn't in it. No, but Nightcrawler was popular. Night, it would have been nice to see Nightcrawler, but then he'd, see, he'd already sort of got the out by not bothering to turn up in X3 yeah. for no reason. Yeah, you say no reason. There was a computer game, an X-Men 2 computer game, which explained where he went. Yeah, I mean, like, that didn't exist <laughs> when they when they wrote the film. Like, that's, that's, that's your comic book prologue to paste over the continuity holes that work there. <laughs> So question 11 was, aren't you just nitpicking? Can't you just enjoy the film? Why does any of this even matter? I think this podcast has proved. (laughs) Because if we didn't make it matter, we wouldn't have a podcast. And in these times, what the world needs are more podcasts. There are not enough podcasts in the world for people to listen to during this crisis. We're just doing our bit. Yes, absolutely. Which I find weird because I'm not commuting and commuting is when I do all my podcast listening. I'm listening to less podcasts as a result of this. And yet everyone on the internet's like, oh, great, I can catch up on all my podcasts. I've recorded more podcasts than I've listened to this week. (laughs) Like, what are you doing when you're listening to podcasts? You can't even go outside. You're not running or anything. Maybe getting on a treadmill or something. I can't do something else while listening to a podcast. Otherwise, I won't hear what the podcast is saying. So... I listen to podcasts when yeah. I'm walking between stations, basically, between home and station, yeah. between office and station, changing trains. That's when I listen to podcasts. Same. If anyone wants to hear a podcast, uh, I have just recorded another episode of my other podcast, What's in the Name? Uh, we did episode five on diseases. So if you like hearing about diseases, and I imagine you do because you live in in, <laughs> in the world times. in 2020. <laughs> 
that episode should be out now. Well, let's uh, let's let's also give Chris the opportunity to to shamelessly plug. Uh, well, firstly, actually, no. Before I do that, Chris, thank you for coming on and having a, a very enjoyable chat about uh, the X Men with us because you're a massive nerd. So that's uh, that's, that's been <laughs> definitely Thanks have you for back having me I, on. As soon as I can convince Seb to do Transformers, yeah. we'll have you back. <laughs> I don't know if I want to come on and talk about the Transformers <laughs> films. I have standards. Um, <laughs> Chris, where can people find you doing all the things that you do? Uh, well, you can find me on YouTube under the name, just my name, Chris McFeely. Um, you'll see my series there that I do, Transformers The Basics, breaking down the long and complicated 35-year history of this uh, children's toy robot franchise for new fans. There's a lot to it, more than you might expect. Just quickly, who's your favourite Transformer? Oh, that's a fierce hard question. I tend to go to, I tend to lean towards Omega Supreme for favourite Autobot. Nice. Favourite Decepticon, I tend to pick Ratbat. Good choices. Mine, my favourite is Flywheels. Well, he is good. Well, from, from yeah, you know him from more than meets the eye, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd also just like to ask you chris am i the only person who's ever repeatedly got confused and thought like be before i knew you better on twitter that you were one or both of the writers of the avengers and captain america films and agent carter no one has ever done it but i like to do it i like to imagine myself as the grant nailer of uh of marcus gonna, yeah, you're, you're, you're the gestalt yes. entity aren't you <laughs> the gestalt entity of the m fellas what wrote them films uh you, you can also find me on uh, sonic the comic the podcast with dave bulmer we've mentioned that in the course of the show but that's at stctp.wigglehe.com where we do an issue by issue read through of the 1990s official sega comic from the uk sonic the comic and you also find me on twitter uh, at chris mcfeely you got that name before either of Mark's yeah Mark's before the gestalt entity so swooped in well and snatched there. it <laughs> <laughs> thanks once again chris uh, i hope you enjoyed being on uh, as much as we enjoyed having you on oh, thanks very much lads. it was a lot of fun and if you listener dear listener enjoyed this episode uh, you can of course find more and subscribe on acast apple Podcasts, spotify player fm overcast google stitcher yes we sorted out the stitcher issue i say we it got sorted out without me doing anything uh, or your podcast app of choice you can find a full searchable index of every episode at cinematicuniverse.com along with all of the subscription feed links and a big archive of features and reviews including because it came across with us from alternatecover.com that argument that James and I had about uh, Days of Future Past which I will I will link to in the post for this episode and we'll see just how many of the same points we made over again this time uh, you can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redbubble.com get in touch with us on Facebook Book on Twitter at cine underscore verse or with an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you'll be able to hear a bonus short episode with me and James talking about something comic specific, something to do with the X Men uh, in relation to this episode. I say something vaguely because we haven't recorded it yet, but we it'll be out by the time you get this. Uh, you'll hear each of those exclusively uh, on the Patreon feed along with ad free and sometimes early access to the episodes. Thank you to Brendan Roberts for being a top regular backer and Jonathan Bonatage for newly backing since the last time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>